Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special Real World presentation. Uh, we're going to call this uh, Ben and Jerome Presents the Top 10 Films of 2022. My name is Jerome Cusan. You can find me on Twitter at Jerome C1985. Uh, please leave a four or five star rating on your podcast service of choice so as to help people get to find what we do here at the real world. Uh, my co-host for this episode, it is not Kevin Ford. It is not Brian DeBrain. It is Ben Phillips. And you can find Ben Phillips at N-Q-U-O-I-D. Is it N-Coid, Ben? N-Coid is how I pronounce it, but obviously that is probably incorrect. You'd probably have to put like a hyphen in between the N and the Q to make that make sense. But it was just a thing. Um, okay, so you can follow Ben at N-Coid on Twitter. You can also follow us at the underscore real underscore world on Twitter as well. Uh, before we get into the episode itself, uh, I want to plug some of the other things that we, the two of us do. This is not a comprehensive list because to do that would take like an hour and a half. So two of Ben's recent projects have been uh, Ben and Mass Marvelous Journey, where they went over the first part of Phase 4 in the MCU. They will be continuing to do so later on in the first half of 2022. And also, Matt and Ben recently completed their 100 episodes of There Will Be Movies with their look at the 1980s. Please go and check that out. My other podcasts, uh, Jerome and Kevin, uh, present Cancel It Too Soon. We've talked about a number of television shows that may or may not have been canceled uh, too soon. We've also talked about Better Call Saul and Barry this past year. Uh, Brian and I are currently in our run of Pantheon Plus, where we are discussing some underrated sequels. And I am very much looking forward to talking about Gremlins 2, uh, The Matrix Revolutions, amongst other things. Uh, so that is a very long introduction, but I wanted to get those plugs in before we start, because uh, by the time we get to the end of this podcast in two or three hours, I'm probably not going to feel like plugging anything else because I'm just going to want to end the call because we are going to be talking about our top 10 movies. Now, usually I think in the best circumstances, Ben and I would not know each other's list and we would surprise each other, but because of circumstances and because of the wonky release schedules, it was it was just better for for Ben and I uh, to tell each other's list and kind of coordinate a little bit. The one thing I can say, Ben, the thing that I am most proud of is there is literally no crossover on our list. So we will be talking about 20 different movies. So I, so I do want to preface this with, obviously, it was helpful in that I was able to go through and watch all of your stuff just so I have thoughts on everything in your 10 that was legally available for me to watch. Because I'm still waiting on a few things in your 10 that have not been released in the UK yet, uh, because we aren't even adhered to the whims of the US release schedule. We just get stuff dumped normally around kind of like oscar academy award like nomination season so like a lot of the kind of the big award getters just get held back and then you just get annoyed when something like empire of light or the sun which you could easily have watched last year which will get like no nominations this year uh ends up being held to january you just get this weird glut of movies at the start of the year and the other thing was a question for you which is you have held back your opinions on kind of two or three movies on my list is this you confirming that none of them would have ended up in your 10 even if you weren't holding them secretly to yourself. Yes. If it, what I would have done is if the, if the two movies that I have not told you my opinion on, if they were contenders for the top 10, I would, I would probably like mention it in this space. Okay. Uh, okay. Just, just for the record. 
that's fair enough. Yeah, so it's it's unfortunate we will not get a lot of discourse in it with certain movies. I also want to say we are going to talk about these movies relatively spoiler-free. Like, we may do minor spoilers for movies, but we are really going to try and avoid talking about, like, the endings or any potential twists because I want people to listen to this podcast and be like, okay, I want to see – uh, some of the movies on Ben's list or some of the movies that are on my list, because for the most part, again, there is no crossover and a lot of the movies on our list are movies that are not huge blockbusters. Ben's number 10 is the exception to that rule. Yeah. But, the, the biggest movie of the year is my number right, 10. Right. And, you know, but for the most part, there's a lot of indie stuff. There's a lot of smaller stuff. There's some movies that have bombed. There's some things on Netflix that Netflix doesn't advertise, so you probably missed it. But I am very, very excited to go through this uh, to go through this list. And uh, I've done little write-ups for each of the movies, and uh, I hope that Ben has had a chuckle at least at a couple of them. I have. I have. I read them very early this morning when I just woke up and was in the process of feeding our neighbor's cat. So a very eventful morning for me. All right, Ben. Are you ready? So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go in order. Uh, we will do Ben's we will do Ben's number ten, then my number ten, and then so forth. We'll we'll t- we'll take turns. Okay. So my number ten uh, is, as I said, the biggest movie of the year. It released what was the biggest movie of 2022. It's about to be overtaken by another different movie that is not in my ten. Is in my twenty. Number ten, Top Gun Maverick. Yes, uh, that's it's very exciting. Like I almost feel like. To do a podcast about the best movies of 2022 and not have this movie on the list would be borderline offensive. So for me, this is my number 15. This is a clear honorable mention, and maybe I can get into in a minute why this didn't quite make my 10, although it's still – I mean, it's still – the best blockbuster of this year. But uh, here's a brief plot synopsis. We've got uh, Captain Pete Maverick Mitchell is still trying to be a fighter pilot in a world that sees less use for humans and wants to emphasize technology instead. He faces his own mortality with a very powerful scene with Iceman and the son of his former wingman while teaching a team of cadets and finding romance with a bar owner as played by Jennifer Connelly. This may or may not be an allegory for the star of this film. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think this movie lives and dies on the entire kind of like star perception of Tom Cruise at this point. I am a little bit sad that Tom Cruise's first billion dollar gross isn't a Mission Impossible, but I do think that this movie doesn't make a billion dollars if Mission Impossible hasn't been kind of quietly operating in the background, kind of rehabilitating Tom Cruise's image uh, over the course of the last decade. I think it sets Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning up to be like absolutely fucking huge next year. I mean, obviously the other part of it is is that the original Top Gun is a perennial kind of like piece of 1980s pop culture ephemera. And the other part of it is it's just a really good movie. Like, I think that's the thing that kind of a lot of people forget is that like not only is it a kind of a four-quadrant blockbuster that looks real, doesn't look like it was shot on a soundstage in Atlanta, but it's just good and it's like obviously it is kind of like meat and potatoes kind of like filmmaking but it all just looks so incredible and it's structured like so damn well like that point kind of like two hours or like an hour and a half into the movie when you realize not even an hour and a half it's like more like an hour when you realize that they're just going to start doing the mission repeatedly you're basically going to like we're setting up the mission we're going to show you how they can do the mission and we're going to do the mission is basically how this movie is structured and at no point is it surprising but it's just so exhilarating to watch just 
the good filmmaking and the good pacing and like how every single person in this cast is just so switched on, even when they're giving paper thin role or giving paper thin roles to kind of like work with when you have people like Glenn Powell and John Hamm and Jennifer Connelly who on paper are not working with much of anything and they get to make like charismatic, interesting characters out of that, that either you're root for your, your, or you're kind of like rooting against or wishing they just shut the fuck up and move out the way. Yeah. Just, good solid filmmaking and the kind of genre that doesn't normally get this kind of stuff or is too bogged down in special effects at this point we could just assume that everybody knows how problematic tom cruise is so i don't even want to get into that at this point but all i could say is that i i agree with everything that you said so i know that that makes for boring discussion but like i don't understand how anybody could watch this movie just on a purely technical level and not enjoy it. Like, yes, I'm, there are problematic elements to it, like, I'm sure, but just on a pure spectacle, like, this was the best movie of 2022. And it's, it's pretty incredible to think that we waited 40 years for this. And I feel like there's a lot of these legacy sequels that either end up disappointing or uh, they end up not feeling the same. This actually feels like it improves upon the first in so many ways that it's pretty remarkable. And to think like Tony Scott is, is one of our, one of our best auteurs. And, you know, in this case, like somebody did something and, and managed to top it. It's, it's, this movie is so impressive and the performances are great. Like right from the opening scene, this movie uh, just grabs you and it's, it's, it's wild. So the reason this didn't make my top 10, and I want to emphasize that these are nitpicks that, again, I agree with just about everything Ben has said. There are two things that I wanted from this movie that I didn't quite get. I'm gonna, and I'm gonna keep one of these, uh, spoiler free. One of them, I, I wanted this movie to be a little bit hornier, like the first one. Mm. And number two, I think I wanted a little bit more, um, consequences and stakes especially when you get towards, like, the end of the movie. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, no, I, I do understand. I mean, I saw some like some people complaining about, like, some character resolutions kind of come out of nowhere, in particular kind of Glenn Powell's character, where, like, it doesn't feel like there is a moment in the movie where where he does the dime shift that he kind of needs to have to happen. He just kind of disappears and then reappears kind of later on in the movie. Um, and the horniness is obviously like a thing that you can levy at kind of like almost any blockbuster made nowadays. I'm kind of happy it isn't happening here because I think Tom Cruise needs a very particular kind of person to play off of. Like you, you see his love scenes in, in Top Gun and they are impressively homoerotic. And I don't think Tom Cruise in 2022 would let that happen nowadays. And like, I mean, the fact that Rebecca Ferguson is like the only female actress I feel he's had a actual chemistry with since god like eyes wide shut maybe is is kind of wild uh that is top gun highly recommend you probably already seen that i would i would imagine most people listening if if you're a movie fan especially uh given the box office but yeah we can look forward to mission impossible possibly being on our 2023 list but let's uh let's change uh let's change it up a bit now you know what movie hasn't got a good box office uh my number 10 which is babylon boy did this movie bomb but I went into this knowing that this was kind of a, a very polarizing movie, and some people absolutely hate it. Some people love it. So I knew that I was going to have strong feelings regardless. Unfortunately, this is one of the movies that Ben was not able to see. If he if he was able to, he would have absolutely watched this. Oh, yeah. 
I would imagine I, – I think this would be in your top ten. So mm. I'm going to be very, very vague, especially va- vague because Ben hasn't even seen this. Yeah. So what this movie is is it is the examination of the end of the silent era kind of through three main characters. I don't, I, I don't even know. When you read the notes, Ben, did you even realize the artist was a movie? Do you remember the artist? I watched the artist for the first time in 2022, so I definitely remember the artist, <laughs> I think. So this movie is like the artist on cocaine, lots and lots of cocaine. See, I've been hearing so many things about this movie kind of like bubbling around the back. Because obviously, like, I uh, am a terrific listener of um, of Blank Check. And like, obviously, Damien Chazelle is someone who, when you hear about this movie and how much it costs to make, it's very definitely a Blank Check kind of movie. And people who had, like, read the script were kind of saying that, like, like whispering about scenes like there's an elephant that shits on someone and i'm just like what the fuck is this movie going to be and then obviously there are all the rumblings about how long it was going to be and and just all these other things and so i'm devastated that i haven't had a chance to watch it i'm about three weeks from being able to see it so i'm very intrigued to hear because obviously i have heard some people say they absolutely hate it but a lot of people i trust implicitly on movies really really love it so it's only building my excitement and that this is coming as someone who is kind of a not Chazelle agnostic, but like I think La La Land is weakest movie is kind of, and this feels like it's playing in a more similar vein to La La Land than it is to First Man and Whiplash. So I think for me, I like Damien Chazelle, I like Whiplash, I like La La Land to an extent, I like First Man to an extent. This is my favorite Damien Chazelle movie, and I think it's just not just because it feels like controlled chaos. There are so many good performances, but. The thing that Damien Chazelle does so well is kind of the the technical aspects and the music. Like, that's what he's known for. And I I will say this. I think Justin Hurwitz should win uh, the Academy Award for Best Score. I think this is the best score of 2022. Uh, Just absolutely some incredible uh, pieces of music throughout. I think the performances, I think Margot Robbie is going to really, really stand out in terms of the acting. But I think that everybody is, is really, really good. Um, I'll just I'll vaguely mention a couple scenes that I think are really good, um, especially when whenever they're whenever they are showing how a movie is shot, and there is a stark contrast with how they shoot a silent movie or silent movies versus how they have to shoot movies with sound. I think the way that they show that contrast, the way that Chazelle presents it, presents it is is really really good, and I think that's going to really stand out. And I know that some people were kind of annoyed by that. But to me, it just shows how meticulous uh, of a director Chazelle is in just showing how frustrating the shooting process can become. And I really, really appreciated that. And uh, there is there is a scene with Gene Smart's character and Brad Pitt's character uh, that I think is really powerful. It doesn't state the thesis of the movie necessarily, but I think it really shows kind of what movies can do for people but also like what this industry does to people in a negative way. And we, there are a lot of movies in 2022 that showed the magic of cinema. I think Babylon does some of that, but it's not as maudlin as like, um, like to me when I, I, I have not seen empire of light, but to me, I look at that movie and I'm like, okay, that's going to be a very maudlin examination of like the magic of movies. And, I don't think Babylon does that. I mean, I think it does that in parts, but I don't think it overwhelms the movie. 
No, I mean, it, this sounds so good and interesting. I mean, I've I've heard lots of people kind of like comparing it to things, and the two that I hear an awful lot are Boogie Nights and Singing in the Rain. It's kind of like, what if those two movies that, that had, a, had perfect, a baby? Yes. So that I mean, is a perfect and, description. Yeah, and both of those movies are movies that I really, really like. So it sounds like it's something that I'm going to really enjoy when I finally get to see it. But yeah, I can't offer much at the moment on it. So is it is it nice for us to be able to talk about movies that are over two and a half hours long, though? I mean, Matt does impose kind of like a limit on how long we can talk about any movie. So it's nice to be able to talk about those kind of things. Uh, yeah, it's three hours and nine minutes in boy, oh boy. I mean, it really, I did not feel the three hours in theaters. Like, maybe it would be different if it's streaming and whatnot. But I really think that this is a very immersive, well-paced piece of filmmaking. So I mean, I've been already been yelled at for seeing Avatar twice. So... <laughs> Uh, by that or by your partner? By many people. Many people have just gone, like, you went to go see Avatar The Way of Water twice? I'm like, yes, I did. I went to see IMAX two times because I'm a glutton for punishment and it just flew by. So uh, I'm definitely someone who, like, if a movie's good, then I do not feel the time whatsoever. Fair enough. All right, let's get to your number nine, which is The Souvenir Part 2. Uh, I believe this is uh, this is one of the few sequels that is on our list. Uh, a very unconventional sequel Ben, your thoughts on the Souvenir Part 2 before we get into the plot? Yeah, so Souvenir Part 2 is a sequel to 2019's The Souvenir, which is a... You kind of have to spoil The Souvenir Part 1 to say, which basically, like, it is a autobiographical movie dealing with kind of like Joanna Hogg in her time of kind of like learning to be a film student and falling in love with a with a drug addict who, who passes away. And then the second movie is all about her making a film, processing that grief... And trying to move on from this partner. And it is, again, if you don't like Joanne Hogg's style, I don't think this is going to be a movie for you. Um, I happen to absolutely love it. I mean, I, I made a priority to go see The Eternal Daughter, which is the third movie in this kind of like triptych, although it's a very different movie to The Souvenir and The Souvenir Part 2. Honest um, Winton Byrne in this movie is honestly kind of incredible. Obviously, she is the daughter of Tilda Swinton. Um, and it was kind of like not her not her first role, but like like her first role in kind of like a leading in leading position. And she's just so good as Julie, as this kind of like quiet meek girl who is just kind of like trying to to process grief and process love and process all of these different things whilst trying to like make her way in the film industry. And like the, the, the only way I can kind of describe the kind of filmmaker that Joanna Hogg is is there is a moment in the souvenir part two, which is kind of like deathly silent. And Julie has gone to go see her mother who is played by Tilda Swinton. And she manages to break, break a little kind of vase. And when I saw it in the cinema, the entire room gasped that this tiny, tiny kind of like domestic moment in which a, a, a completely irrelevant thing. It isn't like scary. is isn't anything like that got broken. And it was just like, you could feel the entire room under this spell of, of just this person who was able to make the, the smallest domestic and this, this kind of very inconsequential one person, very personal story, uh, just, just completely electric. And then the movie ends in one of the most audacious ways that I could like say for a movie. Like the only thing I can compare it to is kind of like the, the way that La La Land ends to, to bring it back to Damien Chazelle is, is you kind of just get this extended sequence that feels so, different visually to anything that's gone before it, but so perfectly the end to this kind of this souvenir duology. Now, I know you can't offer much, Jerome, because you, you've, you've seen Souvenir 1 and weren't particularly a fan of it, and then you tried to start the Souvenir Part 2, but just didn't gel with it. Is it's, there... it's, not, it's not my thing, yeah. which is fine. Like, not every movie has to be for me. And 
I I want to say that I, I'm glad that this movie exists. I'm glad that you put it on your list because I, I, I don't think the movie is bad. I just don't think it's for me. And I think those are two very, very different things. Like I can, I can watch the souvenir part one and acknowledge there's some really good filmmaking. There's some really good performances. It's, it's just not for me. And that's, and that's okay. Like not every movie is going to be for everybody, but you know, this is obviously something that, that means something to you. And uh, there is going to be a souvenir part three, correct? No, no. So, the, the Eternal daughter is the kind of the third part in this where okay. Tilda Swinton plays a grown up version of Julie from the souvenir movies, but then she also plays the mother character that she is in these it's a really fascinating kind of dynamic until the Swinton is doing dual roles in the eternal daughter, but it's also a genre shift in that. It's also a ghost story. It's, it's really good. It's really good. I'm so happy you got to see it at the London film festival. Yeah. I, I love this, this kind of like this weird kind of like mirror image of earth that Joanna Hogg's kind of created where it's about her life and her, her processing her relationships with these people like decades later and and also you've got a fantastic Richard Alwadi performance just one of the funniest things I've seen in film is is his performance in the souvenir part one and part two very good so that is the souvenir part two uh you could definitely uh check that out depending on depending on your your mileage is going to vary uh that's it's just it's very different from a lot of things on our list including my number nine which is a Netflix original it is Pinocchio Ben, we got three different versions of Pinocchio in 2022. Two of them are very, very bad. One of them obviously making my top ten. Uh, so we had uh, we'd have two Oscar-winning directors uh, doing a interpretation of this classic story. One of them for Disney. One of them for Netflix. One of them was good at least. And uh, Guillermo del Toro. Uh, his this is a movie that shows how insidious fascism can be but also mocks the stupidity of those who try to put their boots on the necks of citizens. I was blown away by this. I know that you are not as big of a fan of kind of the Netflix house animation style, but you wouldn't know it because they don't do a very good job of advertising it, but (laughs) there are a number of really good animated pictures on Netflix, Pinocchio, Wendell and Wild, The Sea Beast, all three of those movies I think are really, really good and well worth checking out. Uh, but Ben, do we want to have the full Pinocchio conversation now? Because it feels like there's like two parts to it. Like, yes, there's the there's this version of it, which even I think you would acknowledge is good. And there's also poor Robert Zemeckis, possibly finally maybe going into director's jail for one of the worst movies. of. He's already finished his next film after Pinocchio. I, 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 I mean, I would assume that he was he was saw the saw a rough cut of Pinocchio and he's like, I need to hurry up and direct <laughs> Yeah, like I mean, I think I don't think that Zemeckis will ever ever go away because I think he just has a forever career like stamp of approval because of Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit and and Forrest Gump. I think those three movies just make him infallible, and also like Polar Express still makes money every single year. Uh, but Pinocchio is a travesty. Like the the Disney Pinocchio is. I personally think that the original Pinocchio is like one of the the five greatest pieces of animation ever, and for them to remake it in this fashion is just insulting in so many different ways. Not only to to Zemeckis, but also to just the legacy of Disney animation and and how much it built that company up. Like I had a genuinely unpleasant time watching it, and so Guillermo del Toro getting to do what is simultaneously a more 
faithful adaptation of the Pinocchio book, but also very much a Guillermo del Toro movie is is kind of really fascinating. It didn't 100% click for me in the same way that it did for you. Um, and I do think some of that is uh, like part of my like just hesitance with all of the Netflix animated movies. Like I didn't like Over the Moon. I didn't like Klaus all that much. So I'm very much a Netflix animation agnostic. But like I think this is head and shoulders the best piece of animation that they've attempted to do so far that isn't a television show. And I want to acknowledge that uh, Guillermo del Toro's uh, co-director was Marco Stavison, who also uh, was a contributor on the fantastic Mr. Fox. So I just want to I want to acknowledge that because sometimes uh, the big name gets the headlines, but you you sometimes can miss out on the people that are that are really uh, putting the work in as well. I think this movie works for me uh, just because I think it's it's a great retelling of the story. I think the Disney Pinocchio, I think, is unimpeachable from an animation standpoint. And just some of the wonky visuals, and I think it's got a little weird in that movie, which I appreciate. But I think just the way that this story, just I think it's very timely in a, in a lot of ways. But I don't think it's so timely that 20 years from now, like the threat of fascism is always going to be something that we're dealing with. And I think having a movie like this, I think is is super important. And Look, I think Guillermo del Toro's best movie is Pan's Labyrinth, and I think this, for me, scratched a lot of those same itches. I think the way that he's able to tell, like, these fairy tales, I think it just works out really well. And uh, after kind of – I was very disappointed in Nightmare Alley last year, and I was a little bit hesitant coming into this one after that disappointment, but I was I was really happy just from a visual standpoint – just from a performance standpoint and some of the voiceover and just hot, man, this movie gets really, really dark. And, you know, we can't, I, I really want to avoid getting into spoilers because I want people to watch this movie, but like, you should not watch this with somebody who is like under 10 years old for sure, because there's some very dark themes. Uh, there's a point when a character gets drunk and cuts down a tree. Boy, uh, this, this movie is certainly not afraid to go places, but, I, I like that. I don't think we get enough of that in like quote unquote children's entertainment where they're they're pushing the boundaries, not like for violence sake, but from a thematic and emotional standpoint. And I think that's what I appreciated about uh, this version of Pinocchio so much. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing with Pinocchio is Pinocchio has always been an incredibly dark story and is also allowed a lot of creatives to kind of like reflect their views into the world um i mean what the original version of pinocchio has a scene in which pinocchio gets lynched and he murders jimmy cricket in the first or the the cricket in the first kind of like two chapters of the book or whatever it is like it's a it's a deeply deeply dark story that is able to be pulled in so many different directions and my i think my biggest issue with this version of pinocchio is i think pinocchio is too much of a little shit which i understand is the point is that he needs to have a conscience and stuff like that but like i kind of wished he he was less like obnoxious and more just kind of like will do whatever anyone tells him to do the first time they tell him to do and it was just the characterization that i was just like ah, i'm not i'm not fully vibing with this which is a really petty kind of like thing to come at it for but it was just I kept on, like, seeing the reason why anyone would want to reform this kid, and I just couldn't see it. I think that's totally fair. I mean, I know how I feel with certain movies and kids, so I could definitely understand why you have that, that viewpoint and interpretation of it. I, I think for me, just, I think the way that they set the story up in the first 20 minutes, 
I think it, and knowing that it was kind of the same vocal performance, I think that's one of the reasons that it didn't bother me as much. I think for me, if I were to say that this movie has a flaw, I wish the songs were more memorable. And obviously, you are you are not going to get Wish Upon a Star. Like, you're not going to get one of the most iconic songs of all time. I, I do wish the music had been a little bit better. I think that would have elevated it even more. But uh, nonetheless, I think this is well worth a watch. And the running gag with how they treat uh, Italian dictator Benito <laughs> Mussolini, it might be some of my favorite jokes from a visual standpoint this year. I was also going to say one of my favorite recurring jokes is Ewan McGregor not getting a song. Um, <laughs> yes, Ewan McGregor's really good as Jiminy Cricket. He really is, as is David Bradley. I think like the, the, all the voice cast is really good. I enjoy that it's very obvious that, that Guillermo del Toro is like very happy working with certain people over and over again, like Bern Gorman, best known for Torchwood, is, is back in this after being in the Pacific Rim movies. Yes, absolutely. All right. So we are going to now transition into talking. I mean, again, just just the diversity of the kinds of movies that we're talking about here, like the souvenir Pinocchio and something that is completely different from those two. This is Ben's number eight. It is decision to leave. Uh, as we have high June playing a, he is a detective uh, stuck in a Hitchcockian thriller where he falls in love with another woman who may or may not be guilty of murder. Ben, I know that you are a huge fan of this director so, and also a huge fan of this film, so I will let you speak on it first. Yeah, I mean, I, I love Park Chan-wook. Um, we did an episode on The Handmaiden for There Were Movies. I remember that episode very clearly because I think it's the, the single best thing that I've ever shown Matt in that podcast was The Handmaiden. Obviously, this is a director who's probably best known for his vengeance, truly with sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, Old Boy and, and Lady Vengeance. Um, all three very violent movies. Handmaiden has got like moments of violence or more strongly moments of eroticism. And that's what makes Decision to Leave so kind of interesting because it is far more of a throwback to to something like Vertigo. Like, there are literal shots in this movie that are designed to evoke Hitchcock's Vertigo. Um, it is a beautifully kind of, like, romantic movie as, like, this really interesting kind of, like, cat-and-mouse game between this this woman and this detective as you just get these different pushes and pulls as she's like, as they're like very obviously kind of like falling in love with each other and pushing each other to like be better or, or kind of like pull away from, from their jobs and whatnot. And just, it's just good to see Park Chan working outside of TV. Cause obviously he is someone who I enjoyed his adaptation of the, of the little drummer girl. Um, but it definitely is not, what I want to see him doing. And so when you have a director who is so visually minded as, as Park Chan-wook finally come back to cinema to tell a story that feels weirdly minor in his, in his career. Cause he is someone who is best known for kind of like doing these huge operatic movies that kind of like feature incredibly flashy camera work that really, really draws attention to itself or has moments where you kind of come away going, like, I can't believe he got away with this to then have a movie, which is literally just a, a romance essentially. Like it, it, it fundamentally at the end of the day, this is a, a romantic movie more so than it is anything else is, is kind of really refreshing and just kind of just fascinating that he would do something in such a low key and i think that's what caused quite a few people to kind of like not overlook it but definitely kind of like push it down a peg because it isn't doing anything that's kind of drawing attention to itself it's just a really good version 
of this kind of romantic mystery movie. And yeah, one of my favorite movies of the year, one of the best cinema experiences I've had all year. I loved it, <laughs> honestly. So this is my number 27. So I didn't like it as much as you, but I think there is a lot to really appreciate about this movie just in terms of the direction and what, what Park Chan-wook can do. I have seen, you know, Little Drummer Girl. I've seen Old Boy. I mean, Old Boy is pretty much almost unimpeachable. I need to watch, I need to sit down and watch The Handmaid. That is, that's like on a list of shame at this point because it came out when I was living in China. So it was just harder to see movies and that's just one that got lost and I need to sit down and actually watch it. Uh, but I, I really like this too. I think there's the Hitchcockian aspect of it. Like, I think it could almost, you could say that as like, like a film Twitter cliche and it could come off very poorly and like, Oh, look at this, look at this film student. But I think it really applies here. Just the way that it comes off. I think it's the best version of what a Hitchcockian thriller is because uh, just the way that the story is told. And, and I think the performances are also really excellent uh, as well. And that is also something that I want to highlight because I think very often when we talk about international movies, I think a lot of the talk is, is, is around the director and sometimes the, the actors don't get the credit that they deserve, but I want to make sure uh, to do that here because these are, these are not easy roles to play. There's, there is an opaqueness to uh, what is happening throughout. And I think the reason, the reason this did not make my top 10 is I think it just took a little bit too long for things to click. And I, I think the ending is incredible. And I, I'm not even going to hint at what the ending is, but it's so, uh, yeah. it's so good. One of the best of the year. Yeah, when I saw this at the London Film Festival, before every single movie, they had like a little um, sizzle reel of all the movies that we were going to be seeing over the next couple of weeks. And they had the kind of the two twin shots of the two of them on the beach, like kind of like with the with the camera kind of ascending and the camera descending. I was just like, God, even in this kind of montage of all these movies, that shot is just so good and so when the first of those shots happened in the movie i was just oh i can't wait to see the second kind of like the the twin version of this shot happening yeah like just really 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 gorgeous movie i, was, I, I don't i don't know the cinematographer because I, I think part of chan work's normal cinematographer moved over to the us uh and like i know his cinematographer on the handmaiden uh ended up doing like last night in soho uncharted and obi-wan kenobi so a really weird step down for what is a gorgeous movie in The Handmaiden. Um, but yeah, no, the the performance in this are really, really good. Um, I know Park Hae-il from kind of more Bond Joon-ho movies because he's in Memories of Murder and and The Host. So seeing him get to do like a, a more lead role in this was, it was really good. Yeah, and I think it just continues the trend of just Korean cinema and Korean TV really just having a tremendous impact. The fact that Decision to Leave... It did not get a wide release, but the fact that this movie was in American cinemas for for a few weeks, I think, speaks to just not only this director, but just how impactful Korean cinema has been in the last five years. Yeah, I'm really hopeful it gets an Academy Award nomination because it's just it would be nice to see more Korean movies. I mean, I think I, it it was like. Parasite, the first Korean movie to ever be nominated for Best International Picture, and it's it's wild for a cinema with this richer tradition in in movies as this to to take until it wins Best Picture to be nominated for International Feature is is bonkers. Yeah, I mean we we'll get into the international uh, feature list in a in a little bit. Uh, I'll have some things to say about that, but uh, my number eight is a movie, unfortunately. 
Ben has not seen. And boy, is it unfortunate because I feel like Tar is one of those movies that that people were really buzzing about. The people that saw it were really just buzzing about, like, what does it mean? I think some people have said, like, this is the best movie about cancel culture that's ever been made. The the performance by Kate Blanchett is unimpeachable. This is such a lived-in it feels real. Like there is even a part of me, like no, even knowing that Lydia Tar is not a real person, I was like, is this, is this like a real person? Like, because I'm not totally familiar with classical music. So I was like, is this, is this person real? She is not, but this is, this is just an unbelievable uh, piece of filmmaking. And another one that I think is a, is kind of a slow burn and it really takes uh, some time to click, but there's a very specific scene, which I'm not going to mention here. Uh, where I think this movie just really clicks for me. It happens about it happens about an hour into the movie, and then I was all in. And also another movie with a really just chef's kiss perfect ending. I really love the ending uh, to this exploration of Lydia Tarr's life as played by Kate Blanchett. This is not just a showcase for her, though. I think I don't think there is as flashy of a direction as decision to leave, but I think the decisions that they make about the setting and just how things look. And there are some very clear choices. Again, this is not just a movie that is being shot on the soundstage. There, there's a very clear purpose for why they're shooting in the different apartments and the different concert halls and things of that nature. Atar is, is so great. And if, if I were to rewatch these movies, I think Tar might end up being even higher because this is a movie that has really aged well in my head. I'm keeping it as my number eight right now because I don't have time to do a full rewatch of every movie. Um, but yeah, this movie rules. Yeah, I mean, it's another one. It's much like Babylon. I think it's out literally like a week before Babylon. So I get to see Tar before I get to see Babylon. But like, I've had friends who were in America when this and Fablemans came out, and I was just like so jealous. Of, of people getting to see those movies and I'm just having to wait patiently until I get to see it in the cinema. Um, I'm so happy to see Todd Field back directing because um, obviously it's been, it, it was like what, it was kind of 15 years, similar length of um, James Cameron not directing anything because it was like Little Children and then he really did nothing up until Tar, did he? No, he didn't. And that's, I, I've not seen Little Children. I need to go back and watch that because knowing that I really like this, I need to go back and watch his uh, other parts of his oeuvre. Yeah, no, I, I, in the bedroom and the little children are really good, and I know there's going to be a deleted or like extended, like short film from Tar that premieres at Berlinale, which I'm I'm really intrigued by. That, that like this movie's apparently getting like a sequel or like expanded universe content um, as it's about to be nominated for Best Picture. All right, let's go to your number seven. So. Let's uh, let's talk about The Northman, another blank check movie that did not do very well at the box office. Uh, we have, This is the story of Prince Amieth. He is the heir to the throne. Uh, his father is murdered by his uncle. He has to go in exile for two decades, only to come back and attempt to reclaim his throne and save his mom. No, this is not The Lion King. This is something altogether different. Uh, boy, Robert Eggers, certainly, uh, he got the blank check, didn't he? He really did what seventy million dollars to make a a Viking Hamlet movie, and he will never get the opportunity to work with this kind of money again. I have to imagine after this, um, but God bless him for getting to do it and going absolutely buck wild with it. Because this is, I mean, 
I think you'll notice the trend with all my movies and you'll see it even more with kind of like what my number six pick is, is that like I very much connect with with certain directors visions and I really click with it. And Robert Eggers is one of those guys like I love The Lighthouse. I really, really love like The Witch as well. Like he is someone who is like one of those directors who I think is poised to do some like absolutely crazy stuff. And so him getting to do this movie with some absolutely bonkers kind of like single tracking shots and just it looks gorgeous um the the cast he's got everyone is giving such a good performance it's it is a basic story like we know what the plot of hamlet is we know exactly how this story is kind of gonna go eventually it's just he's bringing so much to the table in style and in visuals and in just bringing these performances out of all of these actors that i just I'm happy to sit there and just watch him play around with this. I I don't think it's quite as good as as the lighthouse, which I think is like that, just a little bit more unique in terms of the fact that it it has more of a kind of unmoored tension to it in terms of not being based on a on a traditional story. But like Eggers is someone who is really good at masculinity on screen and kind of like breaking that down he's also good at femininity like and i really hope to see annie taylor joy kind of like do it have a lead role in one of his movies again in the near future but yeah he is he is one of the more interesting directors kind of like working in and around the idea of like masculinity in the ways that men relate to each other uh in the business at the moment so i will tell you that i think that the, what surprised me the most about this movie is 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 the budget the fact that he got so much money and i i am not somebody uh, i would i guess you could say my one of my bad movie opinions is that i'm not a fan of the lighthouse so that that will probably get me canceled by ben and possibly some of the other people on this website but i think i like i like the northman a lot more maybe it does have to do with kind of the basic storytelling and and why I think this worked better for me. Like this is a uh, this is like my number fifty, which maybe that doesn't sound impressive, but I did see one hundred and fourteen uh, twenty twenty two releases, so this was still in the top half. I I I like this movie. I like many aspects of it. I do think the performances are very good. I don't know. I sometimes I have trouble connecting with sort of these like these ancient. Myth isn't the right word, but I think you know what I'm what I'm going for. Like I feel very similar to this as I do about the Green Knight. I appreciate the craftsmanship. I like some of the performances, but there's just something there that's keeping me at a distance. But I could certainly I could certainly appreciate it. And look, of of all the Robert Eggers movies, this is probably the one that I connected with the most. And I I am glad that he was able to get a budget and that we could see, like, what it, what could he do with a budget? We probably won't ever see it again, but I think this is well worth a watch. And there's, there's some pretty incredible fight scenes and uh, a really good performance by Nicole Kidman, too. I know Nicole Kidman is a meme at this point, but this is one of the better performances that she's had in a while. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm now rethinking my supporting actress awards ballot that I've got on the spreadsheet that I maybe need to add her into that awards ballot. I do want so how much do you reckon your kind of like lack of attachment to this kind of like medieval sword and sandals kind of like genre of movies is that like it's very far removed from like American culture because obviously this is so deeply embedded into kind of like European culture like the Vikings invaded England and Obviously, the Green Knight is based on Arthurian mythology, which is very deeply ingrained in 
in kind of like UK culture? Is it that kind of like that the folklore that we have in England and kind of Scandinavia hasn't translated over to America in the same way where like it's it's a country kind of like rebuilding its its sense of identity around this new home and kind of like leaving behind some of the more problematic, I guess you could say, like history of, of colonialism and whatnot. I think that's that is very very possible. I think folklore for me is just it's it's just tough for me in general. Like in terms of like books that I would enjoy reading, like I would not want to read some of those like the classics, the quote unquote the classics. And maybe that makes me a, a bad white European uh, of white European descent, but I think I I struggle with this genre in general, even though I think the craftsmanship is is top notch. I mean. I, I think I need to rewatch The Green Knight at some point just because what that movie is doing, I think, is probably much better than I'm giving it credit for. I think yeah. with The Northman, I just think I, – I think it tells a really good basic story, and I, I like many aspects of it, but I, it just – it did not connect for me. And I feel like it's going to be the reverse for my number seven, Emily the Criminal, which, again, is completely di- – like, just – Another big swing of the pendulum. Uh, this is this is Aubrey Plaza's like big indie movie. She plays Emily. Emily is a victim of both the prison industrial complex and capitalism. She decides to break bad and explore the criminal underworld. Uh, this was this is my number seven. Emily, the criminal, which has uh, has definitely found an audience on Netflix. And I, look, for all the criticism that Netflix gets, that bump is very real. This has been like in the top ten for quite some time. And I walked out of this movie, Ben, and I was like, that might be one of the best things I've seen all year. And I was stunned because I was not ex- – like I was expecting, okay, this is going to be like a really solid crime thriller. And I walked out of this and I was like, this is one of the best movies that I've seen this year. And I'm still shocked that it, it, it is this high on the list. Like it did not barely make the list. This has been in my top 10 since I saw it in the summer. And I know that you uh, do not feel as passionately about this as I do, but I think what this movie is able to do, it feels, again, this feels just very timely, very present. Aubrey Plaza gets accused of playing kind of a one note uh, she plays that note really well, especially in the second season of The White Lotus. But I feel like she kind of expanded a little bit into kind of playing uh, an unlikable protagonist who, you know, does show some anger. It isn't just emotionless at times. I yeah, this this is the movie that I am most surprised is in my top ten. So I think the thing that kind of like well, number one, obviously, in the UK, when it comes to student loans, we have a thing where, like, all of our student loan debt is is erased after a certain point. Like, you have the debt for your student loan, but eventually it gets erased. So I think, like, the the stress of student loans is very different in the UK than it is in the US. And so it's just a very foreign concept to have, like, student loan debt. And obviously, I understand it's a huge issue in the US. Like, been following all the stuff to do with, with Biden's bill in 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 uh erasing student debt or like an amount of student debt um is is really fascinating to watch the kind of like the u.s political machinations behind all of that um but it did kind of like leave me at arm's length behind the stress at the at the heart of this movie one of the very few places where the uk is better than the u.s uh at this point in time the other thing i felt was 
I didn't feel it earned the, the the kind of the losing of the themes by the end of the movie. I think the themes are really, really interesting in terms of the ways in which capitalism kind of like is is liable to make criminals out of so many different people. I kind of wish there was a button on that that wasn't in a kind of the different plot line involving her friend trying to get her a job is is kind of like my my big complaint i think aubrey plaza is fantastic theo rossi is someone who i continue to run hot and cold on across like what i've seen him in which is mostly tv work to be honest as opposed to film work but yeah aubrey plaza is fantastic i think i think this movie which manages to stick the landing in terms of like a thematic resolution i think is a lot higher on my list than than where this one eventually ended up which was kind of like upper middle i'd say yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I think the Northman and Emily the Criminal, like, it's it's kind of a similar situation, although the movies are very different. Like, I think the themes of the movies, maybe it represents kind of the difference in, in, in our situations. The fact that, you know, you're raised in the UK and folklore is such an important part of, of not only your history, but obviously your education. And, you know, the issues in Emily the Criminal are, are very present, just – because uh, you mentioned the student loan part, but there's also like the fact that she was in prison and can't really get a good job at this point because of the fact that she was in prison. And there's a great scene uh, that she has that kind of illustrates that. I think it's one of the best scenes in the movie. And, yeah, Emily the Criminal is uh, very, su- very surprising that it's in my top ten. All right. We are coming up now to the first of two movies that Ben does not know my opinion on. I even left it blank in our in our notes. Uh, your number six is George Miller's follow-up to Mad Max Fury Road, which I want to be clear. Unlike Matt Waters, Ben and I are simpatico on the fact that Mad Max Fury Road, unimpe- unimpeachably, perhaps one of the best movies of the century so far. Would we Would we agree on that? Oh, yeah. An easy, easy kind of like top 50 movie. <laughs> I'm so, saying top 50, but like I've got – I have like – I know my criteria. It's 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 in my top ten or I don't forget what it was in my one hundred favorite movies of all time. It is on that list. Just uh, unbelievable. And this is this is his follow up, which is very very different. Ben, why is this in your top ten? This felt like a movie that was just made for me. I mean, I I watched all of George Miller's movies during the during the lockdown, and he is a filmmaker who. I just really appreciate when he kind of like goes full audacity. Like, um, uh, so, so Lorenzo's Oil is a movie which, when you see it on the on the surface, it is a movie which feels like it's like a very dry Oscar biopic. But George Miller directs the fuck out of it. Like, he is someone who, if he can do visually maximist, he will do visually maximalist. And Three Thousand Years of Longing is is kind of that, and it's kind of like meshing a lot of things that I. You look at my movies, and obviously, I've already mentioned, I, I really attach myself to directors, and this feels like a director who is telling a a movie about the ways in which we tell stories, which is something that I'm also, like, really, really fascinated in. And also, there is that, like, theme of, of love, which you'll see in things such as, like, Decision to Leave is, is a movie about love, and The Souvenir is a movie about love. And it, it is obviously a theme that I kind of, like, very much connect to in that kind of, like, I'm fascinated in the naughty ways in which people relate to each other and 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 the ways in which telling stories kind of affects the world around us. And so when I saw this in the cinema, I was just completely enraptured. It is 
definitely not structured how you'd think this kind of story to be. There is definitely a ways in which you can levy the idea of kind of cultural uh, cultural appropriation in telling this very, very Arabian Arabian Nights um, influence story from a from a director from from Australia. But yeah, it's just for whatever reason, just sitting there, I was just so fully enraptured all the way through to the end with its kind of like very folklorish kind of like ending. It feels like a fairy tale. It feels like a very modern fairy tale. And that is definitely a kind of storytelling technique that I I appreciate. And George Miller also gets to go absolutely ham in several of these kind of like the past story scenes. And I just love to watch George Miller do what he needs to do. I really like some of the visuals in this movie. I think there is some great visual panache, as you would expect, with the George Miller. I think for me, the reason that this movie doesn't work is you really have to invest in the relationship between Tilda Swinton and Idris Elba. And if you don't, this movie is just not going to work. And I think that's why it ultimately doesn't for me, because I think so much of this movie is told in voiceover, which isn't a problem in and of itself, but it just – it really feels like you, you have to be super into what they're doing. And for me, it just – it didn't work. And I think in, in a lot of ways I would consider this to be a noble failure because I – again, I think there, there are aspects to this movie that I think are really interesting. I love the fact that it has a color palette. This isn't like a generic – like box, like blockbuster where everything is CGI'd. I'm sure there is a bunch of CGI in it, but there, there's, there's some really great, there's some great moments in this movie, but for me, it just, it didn't, it didn't work. And this is one that I was really hesitant about just because there were some very, very mixed reviews on this. And that's why I really hesitated. And I only saw it kind of in the, in the waning days of 2022 because I didn't know how it was going to feel. And yeah, I just, I really struggled. I struggled with this. This movie was under two hours and it really felt like four hours. I, I just, I really, it, the pacing was just all off for me. And there was just a lack of chemistry between the leads. And yeah, that's, that's kind of where I come down. And it sucks because like, especially coming off of Fury Road, like I should be all in on what George Miller is doing. But yeah, this, this just did not work for me at all. See, I'm all in. I, for whatever reason, I think just knowing what kind of story this was going to be, it allowed me to kind of like partition my brain and go like, cool, I, I can do the movie is doing the legwork in terms of like where this chemistry is coming from. And it just kind of like allowed me to buy into this relationship. It also helps that Tilda Swinton's in like three of my top 20 movies. Of, yeah, of, I noticed that. You're a, you're a big Tilda Swinton fan this year. I, I mean, what? It's, it's this, Souvenir, Eternal Daughter, and Memoria are all, are like, all the movies where she's in. I think she's having an absolutely incredible time. It's like her and Colin Farrell, I think, are two of our finest working actors. Um, yeah. Spoilers, we will discuss Colin Farrell uh, yes. in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, like I, I love this. I'm so excited to see where where George Miller does. I'm happy to see that he's no longer got these massively long waits in between. We've only got kind of like a year now to wait until till Furiosa. Um, I hope he doesn't go away for a long time again. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because like George Miller has such a weird career, and I know you've talked about this uh, with Matt in There Will Be Movies, but just the diversity of the movies that he's done and and everything. I, I certainly am. I I am very very excited. Uh, for Furiosa, like that is whenever that comes out, that will be my most anticipated movie of that year. Makes sure. sense. Number six, uh, my number six is a Predator prequel. It is Prey 
I this this movie really surprised me with with how with how great it was. Uh, but this is the story of a skilled Comanche warrior dealing with uh, some ugly motherfuckers and a mysterious predator. You see what I did, did there, Ben? <laughs> uh, the question is, who is really the prey? That's the question, Ben. <laughs> uh, we're all the prey if we want to be the prey. We are all the prey. So I I remember watching uh, Legion, which you can you can hear Matt and Mike talk about Legion on other podcasts. And I remember being a big fan of Ever Mid Thunder, even though I don't think that that show serviced her very well at all. And to see her in something like this, what a year uh, for indigenous representation in movies and TV. Uh, we have the second season of Reservation Dogs. Uh, you had Rutherford Falls. There's just been a lot more and better indigenous storytelling. I also want to mention Dark Wind, which is which was an AMC TV show. So I think this is kind of the best of that. Even though I think Reservation Dogs, I know I know you're not as much into TV, Ben, but I think Reservation Dogs would be well worth your time uh, to check out. It's, uh, definitely, it's definitely on my list. It, 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 I think we've made like a little list of things to catch up on in in early 2023, and it's definitely definitely on there. And uh, and Amber Midthunder does uh, have a guest starring appearance. I think this movie just works in every level. Uh, Dan Trachtenberg, I was a huge fan of Ten Cloverfield Lane, and that is the only Cloverfield movie that I actually really enjoy. And it just feels like Dan Trachtenberg has had a lot of stops and starts. He's done a bunch of pilots. He's done a lot of TV. But to see him get to do something, it's it just sucks that this wasn't in theaters because I feel like it would have been an even bigger deal. And the fact that this is so different from the other other Predator movies, but the fact that it works out so well, and the storytelling and the action and the way that things pay off, I I was just so incredibly impressed. And this is another movie that I'm very, very surprised ended up on my top ten because, I mean, I like Predator, but I don't love Predator. So, yeah, this, uh, this just really worked for me, and uh, I was very, very impressed. Yeah, I think this this movie is probably one of the best um, arguments for why we need to have the sub hundred million dollar blockbuster make a big resurgence. Like, I think this Northman and Ambulance look better than the vast majority of kind of like the big blockbuster movies put out this year, all made for like a fraction of the price. I I I think the thing holding back from watching Prey is that the entire time I was sat there watching this movie, I was like, boy, why am I watching this? on like a tiny screen and not seeing this in a cinema. Why am I not fully enveloped in in the sense and the ambiance of like what this movie should be doing to me? Um I don't think it's quite as good as the original Predator, which I think has kind of like got some thematic kind of like depth to it that just kind of helps it elevate it above this. Whereas this feels I'm not gonna say meat and potatoes because I, I don't think you can do when you're telling a story about indigenous people and kind of like fronting women in, in the way that this movie does. But I do think there are some very obvious thematic things that this movie does in relation to the kind of story we know when you put a, a woman in these kind of environments as the lead character that, that don't hold it back, but definitely make it more cliche than you'd kind of like imagine it to be. But when the predator shows up in this movie, boy, it just becomes really good, gnarly fun. And and I just wish I got to see it on the cinema screen rather than it got dumped to, to Disney Plus over here. Yeah, I mean, here it was on Hulu, so I don't know if, like, the perception changes. Like, I, I'm very curious to know because, I mean, the fact that this was on Hulu and not, not Disney Plus, I think 
might change your viewpoint on it in some ways because for us, Hulu is like, oh, this is where Disney puts all of their adult content. And so because we don't have Hulu over here, they have like a section called Star that they just load all the adult mm-hmm. stuff onto. So like there's a whole load of stuff on there. Like I can watch Die Hard on Disney Plus or I can watch like, a whole bunch <laughs> of movies on just regular Disney Plus because they don't have that kind of triple prong approach that they do in america with hulu espn and and disney plus yeah Uh, see it's it's so weird here because not only do we have hulu but we also have like fx has like a separate tab like there's fx on hulu yeah and so it's it's a little bit confusing my guess is that it is all going to be disney plus at some point that they're just going to merge this all onto the one service but yeah i think for me i think it is basic i think it's a basic story but i think it's just told extremely well and in terms of genre movies i think this is this is one of the the better and more more impressive ones and again can't emphasize this enough amber mid thunder is so so good in this lead role and that's why i think uh this is one that everybody should check out it's easily findable on hulu in the united states disney plus around the world and it's also 90 minutes. Like, I don't think we can underestimate. Like, some of the movies that we're talking about are three hours long. This is about, like, 95 minutes, and it's perfect at 95 minutes. Absolutely. Also, right. What are your feelings on the other Predator movies? Is it just like there is one good Predator movie, or is it just... I like the first Predator a lot. I I, I think I understole the fact that yeah, I really do enjoy like, what it's trying to do. I love the script from Shane Black. I love the the big, like, it's kind of two movies in one. I think it's it's Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of at his best. Like, he's very limited. He's another person. Like, he plays his one note. But I think in Predator, they use it so, so well. And I think Predator 2 is mediocre. I don't think it's terrible, but it's it's not as good. I th- I think the Robert Rodriguez Predators movie is pretty underrated. Obviously, the Alien vs. Predator movies are garbage, and uh, Shane Black's, his interpretation of Predator as a director, I think is probably one of the worst movies I've seen this uh, in the last ten years or so. I just, I hate that movie with a fiery passion. Still haven't seen it, and I love Shane Black. Yeah, I mean, it might ruin your enjoyment of Shane Black, I don't know, depending on, depending on uh, your feelings. Uh, speaking of a movie that I did not like, Ben's number five, <laughs> Red Rockets. Uh, Mikey Saber, as played by Simon Rex, goes back to his hometown after washing out as a porn star in Los Angeles, deals with his wife, his mother-in-law, and meets a, meets a young woman named Strawberry in a local donut shop. So I want to say I did not like this movie. I loved The Florida Project. So if you and I had done a There Will Be Movies on The Florida Project, it would have been just an hour of us singing its praises. I think that movie is great. I love Tangerine for all its... Tangerine's very flawed, but I really, really appreciate that movie. And then to watch this, I was shocked at how much I I hated many aspects of this movie. I just really vibe with the way that Sean Baker sees people. I mean, not to get into kind of his his kind of libertarian politics that you can see on the on the economic policy. I do think he is a very empathetic filmmaker. And that allows him to kind of get out of the way and show you the warts and all view of the world, but without doing it in a way that, like, makes you uh, feel like there's a kind of, like, a false front being put on. I think he's very good at kind of, like, finding people who are actually kind of like this in the real world and making a movie about them that doesn't 
front them as a villain per se, but but does show them warts and all. And I think that's true of like of Tangerine, of of Florida Project, and particularly of this movie, in which I think it's it's undeniable that 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 Mikey Davies is is an awful, awful, awful human being who is engaged in in grooming a 17 year old girl in this work but it's just this incredibly kind of amiable shaggy dog story in which i don't think i'm rooting for him to achieve anything he wants to do but i enjoy watching him attempt to do things and then kind of like destroy his life through his incompetence and i think that's what i kind of appreciate about the, this movie is that like simon rex is wonderfully playing this kind of like this this disgusting dirtbag human being and then Susanna Sun is so charismatic as as Strawberry that I just could switch my brain off and just enjoy the two hours of the dance that they're having with each other even whilst I'm sat there going like boy everything that I'm watching on screen right now is fucked up like completely and utterly wrong on a on a base level and I and I can definitely see if you don't have the ability or just are so turned off by by what Simon Rex is doing that it would just be impossible to connect with this movie on on a qualitative level. Yeah, I think for me in a in a post Donald Trump post Me Too world, this is just not a movie that I was ever going to connect with, and I kind of knew what I was getting myself into, so I walked in a little trepidatious. I will say, I think Simon Rex Simon Rex does a really good job. I think his performance is really good, I think, in terms of playing this dirtbag character. I, even even if I don't like the movie, I can look at that performance and say it's really solid. And if he had been nominated for an Academy Award, I would have both been impressed by the audacity of the Academy and also repulsed at the same time, which probably is what Sean Baker wanted people to feel about this character, I would say. Yeah, this is a movie about kind of holding those two simultaneous views in your head that, like, this is a good performance and this person's terrible. I, I have Simon Rex as my winner for supporting actor uh, for the equivalent year. I, I think I think this is, like, a, a truly fantastic performance on so many levels. And, and I'm just excited to see what Sean Baker does next because I don't think any filmmaker working is, is doing the kind of movies that he's doing that are showing off a very real part of the world that is, again... In a world in which we're, we're incredibly polarized and a lot of filmmakers are kind of like exclusively working within a kind of liberal sphere. Sean Baker is definitely highlighting a world of underrepresented people. And those do include people with a more kind of like conservative viewpoint. Um, and I think it's a hell of a lot better than what the have you heard of um, Dashcam, the movie from the guys who did that that Zoom horror movie over lockdown? Dashcam, I have not heard of that. So, like Dashcam, they like literally hired someone who has like alt right viewpoints and just basically stuck a movie camera in front of her to make a horror movie. And so you have this this found footage horror movie that is being narrated by someone who is just espousing some like really really kind of like awful stuff, and it's just impossible to kind of disconnect the art from the artist, which I think is is what Sean Baker is really good at doing is is showing you people who you maybe not wouldn't want to associate with but like making movies about them that 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 show empathy and show that 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 ultimately people are people and even if there is political divides and and some of these people are maybe causing damage in a way that they don't reflect or realize that they are causing yeah i mean certainly i i'm glad that sean baker is working i think he is representing some 
aspects of our society that maybe are not getting looked at. So if Sean Baker makes another movie, I will undoubtedly see it because, again, Tangerine and Florida Project, I mean, I don't want to say it's a lifetime pass, but certainly those two movies do a lot for making me interested in him and what he's doing as a filmmaker because, you know, I think the Florida Project, I mean, just the way that movie ends, it's it's – it's a it's a beautiful beautiful ending to that movie, yeah. and it's something that still sticks with me uh, to this day. My number five, uh, Ben and I are just about in agreement on this because this was his number one movie for 2021. Unfortunately, I did not get to see it until April 2022, and Ben has the receipts, the DMs of how annoyed I was at not getting to see my number five, Petite Mama. Until April of 2022, Ben, how angry was I that I was not able to see it until that? Time? Oh, so angry. I mean, I got to see it early because it is like a surprise screen, and I was like, right. I know what this movie is. I love Sleen Skiama. I need to go see this, and we made it like a priority to go to this like surprise screening of this movie. It, it was out in the UK like a couple weeks later, but I was like, oh, the sooner I get to see this, the better. And I mean, I think Sleen Skiama is like one of the kind of like 10, 15 best filmmakers working. At the moment, I mean, obviously, fairly recently, we've had all the controversy around Portrait of the Lady on Fire being the 30th greatest, greatest movie of all time on the sight and sound bowl. But I think whilst I can see where people are annoyed at a more recent movie ending up on that list, I think the fact that she made this and Petit Mama back for back has kind of like cemented her as like, no, she is she is a talent. And I think in kind of like 10, 15 years time, we're going to be looking on her as like. Like, if she carries on making movies of this quality, she's going to be spoken of as kind of, like, in the top tier of female filmmakers of all time. Just look at all the rip-offs of Portrait of a Lady on Fire that we've had since that movie came out and how mediocre to sometimes outright awful they've been. That is a remarkable bit of influence for a movie that did not make a lot of money at the box office, but you see the influence just in how many of those kinds of movies we've seen since then. Yeah, absolutely. Like, she... And especially when you think that that movie came out, like, what, award season, kind of, like, early 2019, and yeah. then it doesn't get a wide release until, like, late 2019, early 2020, and then lockdown happens. And so, like, all of those movies have to be, be being made, like, either super close to it coming out or, like being made like immediately after the pandemic. But yeah, there is definitely like a huge influence over cinematography and in terms of just the the trends that we're seeing in terms of like women on film. And then I think that's what makes it so stark is that Portrait of the Lady on Fire is the first time that Skiama is working outside of kind of young children like Girlhood, Tomboy, Water Lilies are all three movies that have very young actors and actresses in them. And then Portrait is is adults having an adult kind of like consenting romantic sexual relationship. And then Petit Mama is back to childhood. And it's just utterly gorgeous. And it's a movie that just completely broke me in the cinema. Like, I was liable to have one of the worst cinema experiences of my life because this was one of those surprise screenings that was... I, I don't know if the AMC do it over there where, like, movies a couple of weeks before they're, they're due to premiere or months before they're due to premiere, they do, like, a... If you've got an AMC membership card, come along to see this. And so you get a whole load of people who are just there to see a free movie. And people were immediately turned off when the French subtitles came on. And then... So, so then about five minutes in, a load of people left. And then kind of about 10 minutes after that, when they realized it was a, a very quiet movie about a young girl, they they left the movie again in droves. And just the the constant kind of like 
turnover of people leaving the cinema was kind of distracting me. And then even that couldn't kind of like jolt me out of the headspace that this movie needed me to be in for for the kind of the rest of its runtime, which is a incredibly brisk 72 minutes. Like this movie is short. Yes. And yeah, by the end, I was just in tears. Like there was another movie ahead or, or on my list which had a very similar effect on me, um, but this movie was literally like from about kind of like minute thirty when I realised what the kind of like the plot conceit of this movie was. I was just uncontrollably weeping for the rest of the runtime. Like genuinely, my partner had to go like, "Do we have to sit here for like kind of like five ten minutes for you to like work through this?" And I was like, "I, I think we do." Uh, just just a movie that completely and utterly broke me, and it's also a movie that I can't speak about in terms of like how we normally speak about movies in terms of like filmmaking and and performances and whatnot because it isn't that it's just a tone that is just dripping off of this movie that that just breaks my brain like this script isn't anything to write home about there is no score until one very particular moment which is something that she didn't portrait lady on fire i think josephine sands and gabriel sands are like in like really good child performances but they aren't given anything that would give them close to like what you need them to do an award performance but but this movie is magical yeah i think magical is a great way of describing it i i was not uncontrollably uncontrollably sobbing but i was just really struck by every aspect of this movie and the visuals and and the storytelling and and everything with the payoff and everything it's just it's a really beautiful movie and um, maybe at some point we need to sit down and, and like have a spoiler filled conversation because I think this is one of the movies that would actually be worth having a, a full discussion about just because it's, it's so incredibly impactful and just the way that relationships are explored in this movie and in your number four, uh, just two very different ways of approaching it, but also two very real ways of approaching it. That is a good transition. Your number four movie the Banshees of Inisherin. Yeah, I mean, Petty Mama is in some ways a movie about loneliness, which was a theme that kind of like very much struck me after after the pandemic in terms of just the impressiveness of not seeing people and family. Uh, and so Banshees of Inisherin is is also that uh, just the sense of loss of community, loss of friendship uh, that can impact you. I am going to be the first to put my hand up and say. I like Imbruge an awful lot. We did a podcast on it for There Will Be Movies, but the filmmaking after that by Martin Madonna has been kind of like increasingly kind of turning me off. I think Three Billboards is an incredibly problematic movie that I think it, it, it's still like a bugbear with groups of friends of mine where like they're just like, how didn't you like that movie? And when I, when I make my case why I didn't like that movie, I still get like a, a weird look. I think this is going back to what Martin Madonna should have been doing the entire time, uh, which is making very small intimate movies about Irish masculinity. Uh, I think that is somewhere where he works so impeccably well. And you can say that this movie is reductive and there's nothing to say in this outside of kind of like remedial gender studies and whatnot. I think there is a lot more to it than that. And I think a lot more of that is down to the, just the, the, the deep depth of performance that Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson give to these characters and and the ways in which this movie is kind of like working through themes of like depression and loneliness and and family and friendship and and that's even without me discussing who I think is like the real key linchpin performance of this movie in Kerry Condon who I do not think the themes of this movie hit home as hard if you don't have Kerry Condon there on the sidelines watching 
this kind of like tug of war between Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson and kind of going like, fuck, this is stupid. Like, I need to get away from this place where the most exciting thing that can happen is a squabble between two old friends. I think this movie just represents small towns in a really interesting way. I think that it could come off as very trite. And I think if you were doing this in America, I just, you would not be able to do this because just the setting is so, so specific. The time is so specific because, you know, amidst all of this, there's a war going on. And I just, I was really taken with this movie as well. It's, it's not in my top 10, but it would definitely be on a long list of honorable mentions. Uh, I, I walking into this movie, not being a fan of three billboards, I kind of had my knives up for this, but I think this is the, this is the lane that Martin McDonough should be saying. And I think this works out so much better. It's not nearly as problematic. And I, I, I think Colin Farrell should win best actor. And anybody who says that Austin Butler should for Elvis yeah, will, will, uh, will raise my ire because what Colin Farrell is doing in this movie, what a career, like, it feels like there was a point when Colin Farrell was supposed to be like this big action star and he just wasn't, but his career has been so much more interesting. This is a perfect representation of that. I mean, he was problematic, fat suit aside, aside like what he did in the penguin was just so different and unique compared to what I think a lot of other leading men would do. I finally saw uh, the 2008 Miami vice and, like, even though he's clearly going through some, through some shit, like, what, what a tremendous actor. What a tremendous gift he is as a performer and so much more interesting than I think a lot of people uh, would, have set, would have set him up for uh, in terms of a career. And, and Brendan Gleeson is great, too. And just the way that their friendship ends and then the way that things just slowly escalate and escalate. I think this movie also earns that two-hour running time, even though it is a, it is a small movie. I think you really need that time. And uh, I also want to say, Ben, between this and EO, it's been a great year for donkeys <laughs> in cinema. I need to see EO. I need to find out when it's airing in the UK. Yes. Um, I, uh, I need to find that out as well because that I think it's I think it's on VOD here, so I, I need to sit down and watch that. But, I mean, I was really invested in Colin Farrell's relationship with, with his donkey. Like, it's such – ah, it's, it's, it's so good. Yeah, I mean, Colin Farrell is someone who I, I think I've, whenever he's come up on the, on other podcasts I've done, and I've always been like really enthusiastic about him. He is, and the year that he's had is just kind of like unreal. I, I did my initial like awards ballot that I do on like a spreadsheet, and I had him down joint winner for this and after Yang, and that doesn't even include his, his performance as the Penguin. I just think, much like Tilda Swinton, he's just had this kind of like really, really good year in so many different kinds of roles as well where like he isn't kind of satisfied with playing one kind of character he is willing to do like again like he is he's so soft and melancholic in after yang he does a Werner Herzog impression at one point which is just it just busts it out and it's just so like out like not out of place but just you're not expecting it and and yeah Colin Farrell is someone who I know the Oscars don't do it for for body of performance in a year, but like he is someone who who has put the work in this year, and and he's he's long overdue an Oscar, I'd say. So my number four. So you know how Matt always has like his three star specials, like <laughs> Mystic Pizza and Empire Records. I feel like journalism movies are my equivalent. I am 
I'm a sucker. I mean, when we talked about my 100 favorite movies, that is a list that included all the President's Men, Network, and Spotlight. I don't think he said is as good as those for so many reasons, but there is just something about this movie that has also gotten a very mixed reaction that I really, really appreciated. And this is the story of two New York Times reporters uh, working to hold mega producer Harvey Weinstein accountable for his numerous crimes, uh, but run into challenges along the way of systemic societal problems. Always seem to protect men. Funny how that works, Ben. But I don't know, man. Like, I know you did not like this nearly as much as I did, but there's – I'll go over some of the smaller things that I really appreciated. I think Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan are giving really good performances. I think that's where it starts for me. Carrie Mulligan is always somebody that I enjoy seeing going back to an education drive. She's just been a really good actor, and it's a shame that she doesn't have an Oscar to show for it. And even in Promising Young Woman, which is a movie that I have uh, mixed feelings about, I, I think she is just fantastic in that movie as well. Um, there's a point when they're talking about postpartum depression in the movie she said, and you don't see those kinds of conversations. And I really liked that aspect of it, that there was, there was that, there was showing some, you know, celebrating, um, Hanukkah as well, like just getting into their personal lives a little more and, and really building, uh, those connections. Those are the things that I really appreciated. I love the fact that Andre Brower's character has no time for Harvey Weinstein. Uh, those scenes where he's just very curt and just not giving him the time of day. Um, those are the things that I really liked about this movie. And again, just showing the process of journalism and like to watch this compared to like in all the president's men, like you really see just how much things have changed in, in many ways in terms of the process and how we do things. But unfortunately, the, the the systemic problems of our society continue to exist. And that's the thing that I think all these journalism movies hit upon is that it's not just one man. It's not just one woman. It's not even one organization. It is these societal and systemic problems that just never seem to get fixed. And I think she said does a very good job of representing that. All right, Ben, go ahead. Hate on it. I know you want to go ahead. <sighs> I don't want to hate on it, and like, and I, I said this to my partner coming out because she's also someone who very much enjoys journalism movies or movies about the process. Like, she literally finished reading the book uh, about a week before we went to see the movie, and I don't want to underplay how important this story is and how much this story needed to be told. Um, I just don't think it's told very interestingly cinematically, and I think that's the thing that holding holding this movie back is that like yes uh Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan have chemistry and they're good together but I think there is something about apart from uh Jennifer Eel's character I don't think any of the performances feel like actual performances on the heart on the parts of the women they all feel like they are kind of out of something that's more docu-fiction than they do in a movie and and it just really held me back when every single speech uh, or monologue that was being done felt so didactic in the way that it was written, and you ju it just it just kind of like really pulled me out of the movie and pulled me out of the emotion that it very obviously wanted me to feel. Like especially when characters started to talk about how important the work that that Tui and and Cantor were were doing, 
which I'm again not to say that it wasn't important work, but it feels weird to have them acknowledge how seismic it would be and felt disingenuous to have the movie kind of like keep stopping every kind of 20 minutes to go and we understand that this is going to change everything right we understand that this is going to be the most important thing and not that it's bad it's just i kind of wish there was more cinematic depth to this than was being presented like the scene that really sticks out to me is is the scene before they hit publish uh, on the article, I'm not. I'm not going to sugarcoat this one with spoilers. Like the books out there, we've all read the article. We know how this movie finishes is with them publishing the article on uh, on Harvey Weinstein. But when the kind of like the entire editorial board is sat around the computer and they're just like, let's read this one more time before we hit publish, it felt so self congratulatory that I was just like, oh, I, you don't need to do a victory lap in this movie. This movie should have been a story about the women contained within this and the horrific things that Harvey Weinstein did to them. And I couldn't help but think about The Assistant, which is a which is a fictionalised movie, but very obviously about one very, very rampant abuser that worked within the Hollywood system. And, and how much more interesting that was, both in terms of presenting the people who work within the system, the people who are abused by the system, but also the people who are there to withhold and uphold the system. And just how much more interesting it was to me uh, when I saw it. Yeah, it's funny. I I like the ending. I, I like the fact. I mean, again, it's kind of it's it's a journalism like nerd thing. The fact that you would sit there and read it one more time. Like I absolutely saw the logic of that, and it just it didn't bother me. And I guess that is uh, that might be the fundamental difference. Like the things that you hated, I enjoyed. Which is uh, it's it's yeah it's. It's tough to talk about a movie like this because there's just there's so much at play here, and I think especially with this story because it's it's not done yet. Like there's so many other there's other people that are involved that haven't been held accountable, and like Harvey Weinstein is still being sentenced and still going through trials. So in many ways, this was this story is is not finished yet, and maybe we'll get a different version of this. Maybe we'll get a um, another angle on the story, but it's definitely a story that is, that is worth telling over and over again, because Harvey Weinstein, especially within this industry had uh, such a, such a huge impact. Yeah. No, undeniably like I, I, I'd be very intrigued to see if anyone would step up and do a different version of this. Um, I do just, just, just my personal taste thinks that you needed to kind of like strip it back and make something that was more analogous rather than, directly adapting this particular story. And that's that's not to say that I don't love Spotlight and I don't love All the President's Men, both of which are movies that are very firmly about real things that actually happened. But I think they both, through the strength of their central performances and through, I mean, in particular Spotlight, which I think has like one of the most impeccable supporting casts that you've ever seen in a movie, just about to manage to distance themselves, but don't forget that this is a movie about people whose lives were irreparably damaged by, by what's going on. All right, uh, now we're going to talk about Jordan Peele. Uh, Ben's number three, Nope. Uh, it's the story of OJ and Emerald. They notice an odd cloud in the sky and not only try to discover what it is, but provide proof as a means to support their struggling business. Uh, ben, why don't you talk a little bit about what makes Nope so great? It is my number 18 another honorable mention, so I think we're pretty much in agreement on this one as well. Yeah, I mean, 
my fa- one of my favorite moments of 2022 was reading Logan Paul's thread on Nope because never before have I seen someone so fundamentally misunderstand a movie that's critiquing them. Just an incredible act of hubris on his part. Ben, you say that, but then Ben Shapiro, I think, topped it with his thread on Glass Onion. Uh, which we will get to. We will definitely touch on that one. Um, I, I think there's slightly more in Glass Onion that you can critique, and I will, I will raise that as, as a point uh, in, in a bit. But, like, no, I think Nope is a movie about so many different things. It is about uh, historically black families in Hollywood. It's about, like, the ways in which we treat animals on set. It's it's a soft kind of, like, homage to Jaws. Uh, it's a movie about uh, influencer culture. It is something that I've noticed is that I very much really like Jordan Peele when he is fully in control of his own movies and doing what he needs to do. And when he's coming on as a co-writer or as a producer, it kind of... The, the the directors or the or the producers or whoever is in charge of the, the the movie where he isn't writing and directing himself they struggle to kind of like thread the needle on the themes that he's trying to present um and i think it's probably like the biggest claim that jordan peele has to being like a one of the great directors to have come about in the last kind of like six years yeah nope is just a absolute blast it is a movie with so much on its mind that is so like so seamlessly manages to thread its themes through the ways in which it tells its story whilst also being just a really good blockbuster that i just have the absolute best time again this is one that i had to go see in imax because i mean john peel shot on imax cameras if you're gonna shoot on imax cameras i'm gonna go see it in the imax um yeah just one of the absolute best and and I I have nothing bad to say about like Kiki Palmer or or Daniel Kaluuya or or Stephen Yeun or or someone who is on my uh, supporting actor ballot uh, with with Michael Wincott who I think is just an incredible performance in this movie just one of the one of the absolute best of the year. Great performances across the board. I mean, this was such this year was such a coming out party uh, for Kiki Palmer just with this movie. Uh, a successful SNL hosting stint that I think only raised her profile. Getting to do her Angela Bassett impression to Angela Bassett, uh, just really, really good stuff. I don't know if you've seen that video, Ben, but boy, Kiki Palmer is such a star, and I'm so excited for what she's going to do next. She'll do an Akira slide. Yeah, I mean, this is so. This is my least favorite of Jordan Peele's movies, but I don't want to make that sound like an insult because Get Out is probably one of my favorite movies of the century i i think i like us more than most people i think us just in terms of some of the messiness i mean it's it's so good and nope is a weird one because i feel like the marketing led you to believe it was going to be one movie and then this movie was just almost something completely different it fell much more into being like a a spielberg type blockbuster in the vein of a jaws than like some of the other horror he's done but I mean, just the execution of this movie is really good. And just some of the payoffs. I mean, again, I don't want to get into some of the specifics, but I love the visual representation of the of the quote unquote alien. I I think that was really well done. And I mean, I don't think nobody nobody does a better job with Daniel Kaluuya than the Jordan Peele. I think Kaluuya has given his two best performances in Jordan Peele movies and yeah, I just walked away really, really impressed with him as a filmmaker. Again, even though this is my quote-unquote least favorite of his movies, I mean, 
you, when you come out of the gate with nope, us, and, or with nope, us, and get out, like, that is just a tremendous trio of movies. And, I mean, Jordan Peele, no matter what he does for the next 15, 20 years, he's somebody, opening weekend, I will see his movie guaranteed. Yep. I mean, the fact that he's managed to to become like a headline name above the above movies now, with he's not even like writing or producing. Or he he's only producer on is is I think a testament to how much his name means in the cinematic landscape nowadays. Yeah, I think I think using his name as a producer to help other black filmmakers, I think is important. Even if the movies like a movie like Candyman, which I think has its good points, it is also very flawed. But just getting getting some of these filmmakers their opportunities. I mean, that's almost more, that means almost more than whatever flaws these movies have too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the one that speaks to me or like the, the biggest one to me is like watching Wendell and wild, which is a movie that John Peel co-wrote, but I, he came on quite late um, because the idea was an original idea from, from Selick. And just, you can tell the themes that like Peel is injecting into it is not, are not themes that like Selick is particularly good at handling, but I would have loved to have seen if Jordan Peele was like more hands-on and like direct it or like co-directing Wendell and Wild, whether or not the movie would be able to like flush through the, the themes of kind of like, like the decay of kind of like society and, and, and destruction of like housing and whatnot. My number three is another very popular movie, uh, although it's gotten some backlash, which is profoundly bizarre to me. We are talking about Glass Onion. It is the it is Daniel Craig as uh, Benoit Blanc. He heads to an isolated island to find out just how awful rich people are, but learns Janelle Monet can slay in more ways than one. That is that's my favorite line. Uh, so yeah, Glass Onion. I I loved Knives Out. You and I, I think one day we just need to sit down and do a podcast about The Last Jedi because we are simpatico on that movie and just how great it is. I am a huge fan of Looper and Brick and both of his Breaking Bad episodes that he directed. I'm very excited for Poker Face. This, in terms of directors, like for you, for you with George Miller, that's me and Ryan Johnson. And I think that is undoubtedly playing it to why this is my third favorite movie of 2022. I, I actually rewatched both Knives Out and Glass Onion on New Year's Eve, and I think Knives Out is really, really good, but there's just something about Glass Onion that clicked all the more with me. I think some of it is the themes, some of it's the fashion, some of it's the performances, and again, I don't, none of the performances in Knives Out were bad, but just the, the quality of the performances by everybody from Ed Norton, who I'm a big fan of, Janelle Monet, Daniel Craig. It's funny, but Daniel Craig, I feel like you had to drag him to do those fourth and fifth James Bond movies. I feel like we're, if, if, if the opportunity arises, he is going to do like 15 Benoit Blanc mysteries. Yeah, I think Daniel Craig is very obviously so much happier doing this than he is for James Bond. I have to assume it's because he has to wear more comfortable clothing and not have to work out for several months of the year and like go on a diet, I have to assume is, is the big reason. Um, but also you just get to go to like a fun location and hang out with a bunch of fun actors rather than kind of like hopping around the world every couple of months. Uh, Glass Onion is a lot of fun. I do think it's a step down from Knives Out in, in some ways. It has been interesting to watch it because it's kind of like one of the things that I always think about when, when a movie is on Netflix is I think it gets really pushed through the discourse ringer and you end up with a lot of people who either don't know much about movies 
saying opinions about movies and showing off how much they don't know about movies or just generally being like just being unable to to grasp a movie that kind of isn't either holding your hand or isn't doing something like that 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 they're expecting it to do and you watched it happen with like marriage story and the irishman and and all of these netflix movies that are very obviously made as like awards fodder or not for the the general generic mass audience that a gray man or red notice is and and the ways in which they get far more scrutiny than than a lot of the other Netflix fare, and and it just it's it's impossible for any movie to kind of like hold up to it. And a movie as fun and frothy as Glass Onion that is kind of doing interesting things with the ways in which murder mystery stories are told, you just get a lot of bad faith criticisms of it in general, which I I don't agree with, and I just think it breaks people's brains a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is a really this is a really hard movie to talk about just in a general way because there's. There's so many plot elements. I, I really like the way that the movie starts, though, uh, with them solving the puzzles, and then Benoit Blanc calls them children's puzzles, and Ed Norton mispronouncing words for a very specific reason. Ed Norton is one of those guys, I know he's such a pain in the ass, but I love seeing him on screen, and it's a shame that it feels like he hasn't been around as much, but it was really good to see him in this movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, he is someone who, back in the nineties, was supposed to be like the next greatest actor of all time, and and has had a very quiet kind of like twenty years since then, really, in a in a very bizarre way. The one thing I will say, and the one criticism I I've seen bandied around about this and the ways it breaks um, murder mystery constructs is that like it is a movie in which the detective knows more than the audience, or like you think the detective knows more than the audience, and I can see why you would. Or some purists would be annoyed by that, but I do think, much like Knives Out, this movie is is bending the rules of what you do with a murder mystery, and and I think it only leads to good results, the ways in which it is bending those rules. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what Ryan Johnson is, has kind of become known for. I mean, I think even the episode of Breaking Bad that is has received such a mixed reaction, The Fly, I mean, I think in a lot of ways it's it's kind of the same situation. This is just what he does, and... Yeah, I'm very excited to see what Poker Face looks like, which uh, will be a TV show coming out in 2023. All right, we are we are down to the top two, the top two movies for each of us, and this is another one for Ben that I just watched, and I've held my opinion back. Uh, this is After Sun. Uh, this is the story, uh, a kind of a father-daughter story. Uh, an adult Sophie is reflecting on a long-ago trip with her father, uh, this is the debut film for Charlotte Wells. Uh, it serves as a character study and a tone poem dealing with memory, how we choose to see our past. Uh, ben, what makes After Sun your number two movie of 2022? This movie broke me <laughs> in a very similar way to Petit Mama. This movie just, in a way that I wasn't expecting. Like I remember when this movie kind of premiered at the festivals. I think it was at um, Venice. And I saw one critic kind of go, like, I've seen this movie six times, and I think it's a masterpiece. And I was like, okay, I need to put After Sun on my list. And then when some friends of mine got to see it at the London Film Festival, and they were kind of like a little bit more lukewarm, kind of like three and a half to four star range, I was like, okay, I'm still really desperate to see this, but I'm not going to make it like the 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 priority that I thought it was going to be heading into the year. And so I skipped the LFS screenings or the ones I could have made and just wait until it ended up in the cinemas. And then half an hour in, much like Petit Mama, I was just in absolute floods of tears for just 
reasons I can't even like properly explain because I don't think this movie is as quite on the level of kind of like perfection of of Petit Mama. It's it's but it's definitely close to that. Where like it took me a while to realize what this movie was doing and. Maybe on kind of like viewing two, viewing three, which are going to be very able to me because they're coming, it's coming to streaming about in about four days in the UK. So I'm definitely going to throw it on and just kind of like see whether or not my emotions are still, still riled up in the same way. But it's a movie that like slowly unfurls itself and you begin to realize the, the things in the kind of the margins of this movie where it isn't exactly what you think it is and and like there are like kind of like three turns kind of like later on in the movie that kind of like pivot your expectations about like what exactly am I watching here? Like, is this a movie from the perspective of someone in this time period, or is this a reflection, as you say, like the ways in which we kind of like deal with deal with memory and whatnot? Like how much of this is real? How much of this is recorded history? And I just I I don't have enough good things to say about like th- this is a debut film from Charlotte Wells. Like hopefully she carries on making movies because dear lord has she like cemented herself as like someone to pay attention to going forward uh, and then to 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 wield paul mescal who obviously only really came into to people's kind of like views with normal people in 2020 but then obviously has had like a really good time off that with a great supporting performance in the lost daughter and then obviously this where he is like firmly on my best actor ballot and then Frankie Corio, who is, who is a, again, a revelation of a child actress in this movie. One that is kind of impossible to spoil, but also one that you really do need to experience without knowing much of anything at all going into it. Uh, a very weird balancing act of this movie behalf, but yeah, I do think a, a true masterpiece of 2020. Okay, Ben. So I, I do have some good news for you. I did not hate this like I did 3,000 Years of Love. So I would probably put this in the three and a half to four-star range, I think that's where I would end up. I, this is what I will say that is good about this movie. Paul Mescal is a fantastic performer. I remember watching Normal People, and I was just so struck by those two lead performances. And I know that that that, that show is certainly not without its issues in some ways, but just what those two brought to that show – I don't think it's something that you can capture in a lot of TV shows, but I think in this performance, I think you're getting a lot of those same beats. I think nobody plays inner turmoil better than him. And <laughs> I think that's what he like. It's, it's not even like a one note thing, but just you see the trauma in his face and in, in his actions and in his behavior. And it just, it works out so well. And I have a complicated relationship with child actors because I think, in some ways, I think they could be very bad. I will say, though, that I think Frankie Corio is so, so good in this movie. She is the perfect 11-year-old. Like, they cast such a specific age. And you really see that balance of she is a child, but she is also on the verge of becoming an adult. And I think her actions, her look... Uh, the way they costume her, like, you really see, like, this is an 11-year-old. And just that balance is so perfect. And the chemistry that they have as a as a father-daughter, I think, works out really well. There was just something holding me back from, like, really just enveloping myself in it. Maybe if I had seen this in theaters, maybe I would have uh, uh, liked this even more. I do think there's some great flourishes and just the way – that they treat memory and just some of the, those, the, the, this movie is just about moments 
So in that way, it's 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 a little bit like a Linklater movie in that there are just so many of these great little moments that are captured, and it really does feel like a memory of something and not something that's happening in the moment. I just I wanted something more, and I can't really tell you what that is. That makes me a very bad film podcaster. I just think there was there was something missing, and I can't quite put my finger on it. But I still think this was a very worthwhile endeavor. I I am very glad that I saw this, even if it did not end up on my list. I'm very glad that I watched it because it is something that is so different. And it, it, I I just wanted to feel something watching this, and I did. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Like, again, a lot of people who've come out of this movie and said it didn't hit me are coming at it. Like, it felt slight. It felt like it didn't, like, hang together. And I'm like, I, I understand, but, like, I don't. It's because it didn't hit you in that way, and I think the people who it is hitting are being really loud about this, and you see it at the top of like many, many of like the, the film critic lists this year, and it really is just one of those movies where like either this gets you, or like it almost gets you, or like it just completely loses you. And there's you're you're one of those three buckets, which means either you absolutely love it and you're rapturous about it, you're like it's good to great, or you're just like what the fuck is everyone talking about with this movie? Like this movie is is nothing. It's it's kind of like massively ephemeral. Uh, in a lot of ways, and and for me, I, this movie I am definitely in bucket number two. Yeah, this this movie just it, again, it just utterly wrecked me. I don't think I've seen a movie in which just the act of someone stepping onto a carpet was enough to cause me to just kind of like fully like sob. <laughs> ultimately, well, I we will get to a movie that broke me in just a few minutes, but I'm going to talk about my number two. I just want to say this almost was my number one, and. Just in terms of this year in movies, I think 2020 year, 2022, at the box office, not so great. But just in terms of quality movies, I would put this year against many others this century. I think in in a lot of other years, I was going back and looking, my number two would have been number one in a lot of other years in this in this century. And my number two is RRR, which I hope people have heard of at this point, but uh, this is uh, this is an Indian movie. It is not it is not Hindi, so I think that's it's not Bollywood. Um, I watched a bunch of videos just covering the differences in that. So this is kind of my first exposure to Indian cinema. So I'm coming at it from that angle, but I was just blown away. This movie is three hours long, and if this movie had been four hours long, I think I could have sat there for all four hours. Um, there have been a bunch of movies recently. Drive My Car, Babylon, this, where they do the title, title card, like a half hour, 40 minutes into the movie, and it it just, it's great every time, and I think this might be my favorite. The way that they build up to the title card, RRR, is just, uh, it's fantastic. This is a movie that I think is is could be considered politically problematic. I do not know the nuances of Indian politics, so I, I cannot speak to that. All I can tell you is I had an absolute blast. Watching this, I, I I really should have gone to the cinema and seen this because I think oh, I would have enjoyed it even more. Does that mean you saw um, the Hindi dub then rather than the Telugu? Yeah, like... unfortunately. I really, uh, at some point, I really want to go to a theater and, and screen this. The fact that the fact that I had so many things going against it watching this on Netflix as opposed to that, I think just speaks to how, how incredible this movie is. This is a fictional look to two real revolutionaries. They fight for their country, develop a bond. And find romance while still finding some time to dance. And if this doesn't get nominated for Best Picture and Best Song, I am going to be absolutely infuriated. <laughs> it's 
this is probably my favorite cinema experience of, of 2022. Like just an absolute blast. There was, there was a, a woman kind of sat two, three rows in front of me who was very obviously on her like third or fourth viewing who like excitedly leaned over to her friend and was just like, I need you to pay attention for this next scene. And it was like the, the opening to the, the big dance number in, in act one. And I was just like, Oh God, this, this movie has just a, a vice grip hold on my entire being for this full three hours. Yeah, this this movie is just enormously enjoyable. It's it's so much more fun than so many of the blockbusters that's being made over in over in kind of like America and the UK at this point. And and something that deserves to be seen in cinemas. I'm glad to see that I got an email today saying that RR is playing at like a independent art house in the Manimi because obviously it's just it's doing numbers where people want to keep seeing it in the cinema and they're they're less interested in seeing it on Netflix even though Netflix has like international rights for everywhere. Truly a blast in cinema. I do hope it does end up with a few more nominations than just international film. I think international, it, it actually can't even get international film, can it? Cause I don't think India are submitting it as their film. It's, it's infuriating that this will not be nominated for best international because it, it should win. I mean, it should be nominated for best picture, but it should have won. Best international, easily. Yeah, utterly bizarre decision on behalf, but obviously this happens all the time where, like, in the year of Portrait Lady on Fire, France decided to submit uh, Les Miserables. So sometimes the, the the awards body just makes weird decisions that don't play to the audience they actually should be playing to, um, and instead are just like, no, this is what we think film should be uh, from our country, which just feels weird. But yeah, RRR is, is just hugely hugely enjoyable as you say there are some problematic elements obviously less problematic elements are just repeatedly killing english soldiers which is just only a good thing um i mean that's my favorite part no offense ben (laughs) no i fully 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 accepted i mean i went to a school in which literally the school is named after a colonialist so we have a fucked up country in and relationship to the rest of the world I do think that there are some very strong issues in terms of the presentation of kind of um, of uh, characters of the Islamic faith in this movie, uh, which kind of rewrite history, which is the the, the political issues that you, you mentioned beforehand. Because uh, this is a very conservative movie, ultimately, in the, in the way of, of a lot of Indian cinema. But it is incredibly fun and just well made. And you just don't see things... At this scale, with this sense of levity, they're also able to kind of like an hour in go, and now we're going to have an extended 10 minute dance sequence. And it works. Like, it's not just a dance sequence for the sake of it. Like, it actually works within the context of the movie, and it's one of the best parts of the movie. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, a movie like Top Gun, I don't know that you, the two of us would necessarily agree with the politics of that movie, but I mean, Top Gun is also one of our favorite movies. So, I think it just depends on what the presentation is. Context matters, of course, but I mean, not not every movie you're going to align with politically, and that's and that's okay. Like sometimes, I mean, I would say Clint Eastwood has made some very good movies, and I would also tell you that I don't agree with Clint Eastwood on almost anything politically. Yeah, I think it's just important to raise what the issues are and acknowledge. Oh yeah, absolutely. You can have, well, you can have a constructive conversation around why they matter or why they don't matter or why they affect the 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 ongoing ambiance of a movie and why someone shouldn't be belittled or told off for having them kind of like overwhelm the movie itself Here, what i would say and this is true for any movie is that if there are issues in in a movie where it detracts from your enjoyment or like you it is something that hits so close to home that you can't enjoy it like i totally get that because i would say that a movie like red rocket is not something i enjoyed and part of that is because of you know my belief system so i certainly get if people 
either dislike the movie or can't watch it. Like for those reasons, like I totally get it. All right. Our number one movie of 2022, Ben, your number one movie of the year is my number 10 from 2021. So we are pretty much aligned on this. It's the worst person in the world. I think in an, in another world, this would be like a TV show and like a decent TV show. I love the fact that this is a movie, period, end of story. This is a two-hour movie about the story of Julie. She is living four years of her life, struggles with romance as well as her career. Uh, ben, both of both of us think this movie is one of the best movies uh, possibly of the decade so far. What made this your number one? Uh, I, I just think this is an incredibly winning movie that also is hitting at like a very – key part in my life in that like i turned 30 in 2022 um and obviously that's a big kind of like plot point of the worst person in the world is that kind of like that straddling between your your late 20s and your early 30s and the ways in which you rethink the relationships in your life and the the, the world around you and i just think uh Joachim trier and and renata Rensiv are just a, a match made in heaven i think this is a perfect kind of director actress combo i think i had them as my like favorite director and favorite favorite actress like just incredibly winning it's a movie that like you see the title worst person in the world and you expect it to be someone as appalling as simon rex in red rocket and and this isn't what that movie is this is about that kind of like internal perception of of the way that you impact the world around you and how you could be the worst person in the world to to one very particular person in your life and the ways in which individual decisions you make add up to make you uh, a different person or a new person or just how they affect the world around you and the, the, your perception of yourself and it's such a kind of like heartfelt felt movie it's so emotional it's so joyous it's it, it basically encompasses kind of every possible emotion you could have this really is an epic in the shell of a of a personal intimate drama I'm not going to say that like this is this is every single person's feeling, but I definitely felt myself, my worldviews, my struggles, my my views on things reflected back through this movie in a way that I was just like, boy, this this is truly something special. This is only one of about five movies I've given five five stars to this decade. Some people will say I'm absolutely insane for having like that many movies at five stars, but I do tend to overgrade. Uh, in a lot of ways, but yeah, like this is a movie that I I have been thinking about constantly. It it's currently sat on top of my my like DVD shelf, and I'm like I need to throw that in. I'm maybe I do like a little house thing and like have people around who haven't seen it who I think will really really like it because I do think this is a a movie that more people should see because it is really really something special. So in the United States, uh, it is streaming on Hulu, so I would strongly recommend that you uh, you check it out. I think uh, this movie. I, I don't really have a lot to add. I think this movie, because we are in such agreement on it, uh, you know, we could maybe get into spoilers again. This is definitely, this might be worth it, but I mean, it's just, it's a wonderful movie. It's just, it's so good. And again, I watched this and I was like, boy, there's a world where this is a TV show and it's a good TV show. But the fact that it is a two hour movie, I think that's what, that's what adds so much power to it is the fact that it is this singular story. And I did get to see this, in theaters and i think it's it was the it was a perfect it was a perfect place to see it so yeah worst person in the world is a great great movie that not enough people have seen so that's one of the reasons i'm glad we got to highlight it here yeah and just to say that anders danielson lee 
is a man who his his first job isn't even as actor. He is a doctor first and foremost, who who occasionally acts, and it's genuinely <laughs> offensive that he is as good as he is in this because he's also fantastic in Bergman Island. I don't know if you've seen seen that one. I have not. Oh, Bergman Island is a, a real treat. Um, Vicky Creeps, Tim Roth, Mia Wasikowski, and Anders Danielson Lee is just a beautiful movie. That is that is also on Hulu, so maybe I maybe I can check that out pretty easily. Uh, so my number one is Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. This is the movie that I think this is like my equivalent to After Sun or Petit Mama. I remember, uh, especially when you get to the, the waning moments, just being an emotional wreck. And this is a movie that I walked out of the theater. I was like, if I see a better movie than this the rest of the year, then this is one of the greatest years in the history of movies because uh, this just this this broke me. And... I was just so impressed by everything. I mean, there's been so much discourse about this movie at this point that it's it's almost hard to say anything new. All I could say is, again, I, I would just say that if this movie doesn't win at least Best Actress for Michelle Yeoh, I'm going to be incredibly angry, even though awards don't mean anything. I mean, it's just what a cap off to her career. And, like, there's there's so much to say about this. And... It just feels like, you know, Marvel has been tap dancing with the multiverse stuff. And then the Daniels are like, you know what? We're just, we're going to do this. We're going to, it's, uh, it's, it's the equivalent of, uh, we were working on this story for two years and he just tweeted it out. Like that is, that feels like the equivalent of this movie that the way they handle the multiverse stuff and just all the performances, Stephanie Sue, Jamie Lee Curtis, Kay High Kwan. I mean, what a story. Kay Haikwan, who was a short round in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, wasn't really acting anymore, was so inspired by Crazy Rich Asians that he made his big comeback. The shout-outs to uh, Wong Kar Wai, it's just, ah, Ben, I love this movie so, so much, and uh, I am going to be rewatching this many, many times, just like RRR. This movie is both emotionally resonant, but it's also a blast at times, and... Yeah, that's that's really all I could say is that this movie this movie has literally been number one since I saw it in April, and uh, it was uh, it was never going to change. Even though I love RRR, I love Glass Onion. This this was my clear and definitive number one for 2022. I'm not going to say this is a bad movie. I've seen a lot of people make the argument that that this is a a, a awful movie, and I'm just kind of baffled by that take by an awful lot of people. I am. On the lower end of of in, like loving it than a lot of people I know. I posted a list recently where it was kind of like where it's in my my deep twenties, and I got so many responses saying like, "How do you think there are twenty better movies than than this in twenty twenty two?" And I'm just like, to me, I think kind of the first hour of this thing is is kind of unimpeachable. I think that's when kind of like Stephanie Sue gets to kind of like, or like everyone kind of gets to stretch their legs quite a bit. It's when the movie starts trying to to wrap up its themes and i feel like it keeps kind of like like hitting emotional beats repeatedly that soften them for me like it felt like it was kind of like really drawing attention to some of the stuff that it wanted me to be drawn attention to and i kind of wanted it to kind of like take a step back and let let those things breathe that held me back from kind of like having a full-on emotional reaction because as we've said in this episode i'm someone who can have full-on emotional reactions to movies. And to be a person on the outside of that felt very telling to me in the ways in which this movie was was 
weaponizing its kind of like emotional heft. Uh, and this isn't to say that I don't like the scene with the rocks. I, I am not an inhuman person. The scene with the rocks is one of the best scenes of, of 2022. I think all the performances are great. Uh, Michelle Yeoh is, an, is my actress pick as well for this year. There is just something about the maximalist nature of this that I felt like it just needed to take a step back at, at a certain point and kind of mellow out a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, look, I don't think you're bringing in bad faith arguments. I think they're, they're, they're legitimate criticisms and then there's bad faith arguments. I think people just want to, whatever, whenever you get a movie like this or, you know, even a glass onion, you know, there are people that, that want to take these movies down because, and they want to be the contrarian and, there's there's a lot of money in being the contrarian as as we know and I I do not think you're doing that but certainly uh, there there's a backlash of course because I mean that's just what that's what movie discourse is in 2023 is that you know the best movies are always going to kind of take the take some heat and it's uh it's it's unfortunate like even if you don't think this is a great movie I mean there's there's many aspects of it that you can appreciate and even if I don't think After Sun is the number two movie of the year like you do. Like, there's certainly – not every movie has to be the worst or the best. There is there is a happy middle, and I just wish we could acknowledge, like, they're just good movies. Like, some movies can be three and a half to four stars, and that's and that's fine. Like, there's, there's, there's a really good thing to be said for a three and a half to four star movie, which is what I would say you would say this movie is, right? Yeah, this is this is a four star movie to me. Like, it's great. I think like the performance in it really elevate it. There's so many ideas that I just have to be impressed by it. It's just there is the thematical weight and emotional heft of it just didn't hit for me, which is what's holding me back from being like, ah, oh, yeah, this is this is one of the the ten best movies of 2022. Which I feel like this is going to be the movie that is brought up in discourse for yeah. for the rest. This, of the I've decade. seen this on a ton of 20, on a ton of. Top ten, but yeah, like I mean, I think I, apart from I think she said I think I like every movie on your list. Yeah, yours is a, it's a little more mixed because <laughs> I don't like Red Rocket, I don't like Three Thousand Years of Vlogging, and but yeah, I would say that I at least like uh, no and the Souvenir seven out of ten. That's I mean that's still a pretty good percentage, and I, I definitely feel like I I look at movies like like Banshees of Inisherin and Nope, and I could definitely see rewatching them and and maybe elevating them a little bit. I think those are those are definitely movies that I could see myself rewatching and enjoying all of them. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm very uh, excited to revisit a lot of these kind of 2022 movies with, with hindsight. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> because I think it's really hard when the discourse is happening, but sometimes, you know, you see a movie a couple of years later or 10 years later, and it just, it really changes your perception of it, I think. No, absolutely. All right, uh, so we are running, we're running long, Ben. I have to tell you, I'm, I'm not surprised. We are at over two hours, so I think we're going to start to wrap this up. Uh, but do you have any any final thoughts about the year in movies, 2022? Any honorable mentions, disappointments, anything of that nature? Uh, so honorable mentions, I'm just, I'm just going to kind of go three. Uh, so the three that kind of like stuck in my mind, Licorice Pizza was a movie that was kind of like very borderline. It was on and off my list, mostly because of like release date shenanigans. It came out on the 28th of December, 2021 over here. So I kind of left it off the list, but like very much a movie that I had to wait until 2022 to see. So that's, that's an honorable mention. Turning Red, which also doubles as my biggest disappointment in terms of the way that Pixar treated that movie. I think 
Turning Red deserved to be in cinemas over Lightyear. I think truly, truly astonishing behaviour on the part of Disney on that one. But yeah, one of my favourite animated movies of the year. In fact, my favourite animated movie of the year. And then the third one is, to to bring it back to Tilda, uh, Memoria. Probably the movie that I've thought about the most since leaving the cinema. I, I really am looking forward to a rewatch of this one. I feel like it's only going to grow in my estimation because I think it's just such a singular experience and if you've not seen it i would recommend it especially if you've got like a good sound system uh, sound system because it is a true cinematic delight i'd say all right my honorable mentions i'm going to highlight three of kind of my this is not necessarily in order i just want to say michael bay made the best movie i think he's ever made i know you'd strongly disagree with this but i loved ambulance and Boy, what I, I was so I was genuinely surprised. This movie was in my top ten for a long time. So See, I will say this was actually my biggest surprise, and it's a movie that like it was quite funny. I watched The Grey Man on New Year's Eve. It was the last movie I watched of twenty twenty one, and I literally kind of like wrote a pithy review to a friend and was just like, "Boy, Michael Bay gets how to use drone cameras in a way that the the Russo brothers do not." And then literally about two hours later, Patrick H. Willems dropped the video. <laughs> which had that very same critique where the entire video is basically comparing Ambulance to the Grey Man. And I'm now thinking I need to rewatch the Ambulance and kind of, like, see whether or not it grows in my estimation. In fact, I'm at a point where I'm like, do I do a full Baywatch and do a full ranked Bay filmography list? Uh, a full Baywatch? I think yes, yes. I, so no, I Ambulance... Dwayne Johnson and Zac Efron's effort in Baywatch. Uh, but yeah, Ambulance is, is probably my biggest surprise just in terms of like, I think it's a movie that I would compare to old in a lot of ways where I think Michael Bay is doing things with the camera that I've never seen before. But obviously I attached emotionally more to old than I did to Ambulance, which is still very much the kind of maximalist way in which which Michael Bay kind of does his movies that I felt overstayed its welcome at two hours. I think if, if someone got Michael Bay to do a 90 minute movie, boy, I think that's going to fucking rule. Yeah, I mean, I, I would I will acknowledge it's too long, and that's why it's not in my top ten. But I connected this so much more than almost all of its previous work. Uh, I want to highlight Marcel the Shell, Marcel the Shell with shoes on, which was uh, in my top twenty. Uh, I really really like this movie. This is a movie that also broke me and could have easily been in my top ten. I think again, it's it's you could argue it's very slight, but. Boy, this this movie is so good. I was I was genuinely surprised at how emotional I was at a certain point in this movie. Yeah, one that hasn't come to the UK yet. I think it's due like early February, so I definitely will be there. I think there. this movie might end up being in your 2022 top 10. We shall see. We shall see. And uh, I, I also want to mention the menu, which I thought was pretty fantastic. Ralph Fiennes' view on trans people aside, I, uh, I really like the menu. I think this was a, a very good... Uh, experience and a perfect movie to discuss for us because we are film critics and Ralph Fiennes would probably want to murder us too. I like the burger. I wanted a burger after I saw this one very much so. Uh, yeah, it's, I think the most unbelievable part of the menu was Anya Taylor Joy eating the burger because <laughs> I just don't believe it. I just never. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would say it was a great year for horror. I don't know that we've had we didn't have a lot of horror movies in our top ten. But if you look at my top 50, there's probably more horror than usual, especially X and Pearl, which I know Ben has not had a chance to see yet. I think those are two really good horror movies. Barbarian, Scream, also on my list. So I just want to mention uh, so there was some really, really good horror this year. Uh, in terms of uh, some of the worst movies, Pinocchio, 
uh, is up there. I would say I, I hated Clerks 3, and there's a whole conversation to be had. And I also want to mention Amsterdam was also terrible as well, because fuck David O. Russell. Yeah, I'm going to run through my bottom ten real quick, just because I've got Go it ahead. open in front of me. Bardo, uh, Inaritu, just fully up his ass at this point. Thor Love and Thunder is a a truly kind of like awful follow-up to, to Thor Ragnarok, which we discussed in depth in our Marvel Cinematic Universe ranking. Falling for Christmas is a, like probably the one I'm the most positive on in this ten, but I just have to acknowledge it's like not good <laughs> at all. But it's got a sense of humor about itself that like kind of shines through. Uh, then we're truly into the Donald stuff. Like, don't worry, darling. The Gray Man, Black Adam, Amsterdam, Fantastic Beast, Secrets of Dumbledore, Morbius, and and Disney's Pinocchio. What a collection of just kind of like cinematic travesties. Uh, yeah, Black Adam and Morbius are also in my bottom ten as well. Boy, it's uh, it's it's been a great year for movies, but there are definitely some standout ones that were just brutally awful. The well. fact I have three like one star movies, I think, speaks volumes about kind of like the the, <laughs> the depths of how bad some of the movies were this year, especially because a lot of them feel like they are. This feels like we're getting a lot of kind of like the the COVID toss-offs, like the ones they were just like obligated to make in late 2020 Mm at a rush clip. So you have those passionate movies where people like really desperately wanted to make them because they've been locked down for months and months and months and they've got a version of creativity. And you got like Dumbledore, Pinocchio, Morbius, which feel like they were thrown together as a contractual obligation, ultimately. Absolutely. Are there any movies that you would say you enjoyed and critics didn't? I mean, I think uh, 3,000 Years of Longing is probably the best example of that. I think that is a movie I mean, that, that is got, fresh like, on Rotten Tomatoes, though. It's like a 60, though, isn't it? It's, it's very borderline. Yeah. Um, otherwise, is the whale fresh still, or is the whale gone wrong? I mean, the whale's kind of, I would say the whale's kind of a mix, but yeah. that is a movie that you and I passionately disagree about. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's definitely not a certified fresh. I, I, other than that, I don't think there's anything that, like, I think got a negative review this year. Like, there are quite often I have, like, an old or something hovering around my, like, top 20 that, like, definitely is disliked. But I think this year I'm I'm fairly safe on, like, most things I've got are above a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, for sure. I would say, I mean... I'm I'm just looking at my list, and I don't think there's anything that people would passionately disagree about in terms of that. I would say, man, I'm, I'm just looking through my list here. I mean, I probably I think I enjoyed Strange World more than a lot of people did, even though I don't think it's it's top tier Disney. But I would say I, I enjoyed that probably more than many others. Uh, so yeah, that's 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 probably it for in terms of that. Anything else? Is there? What's your most anticipated movie of the of 2023? Let's say I'll ask that. Oh, God. Um, I mean, the easy answer is to go the best day for cinema in the year would be July 21st with Barbie and Oppenheimer back to back. Okay, Benjamin, gun to your head. You have to see one of them. What are you seeing? You can only see one. What are you seeing? Barbie. I think I agree with you. I I don't know what that says. I... I've, I I have enough Nolan movies that I could never see a Nolan movie again and still be happy. Like, Nolan could finish his career now, and I go, like, I have a body of work that I can go to see, whereas Gerwig still feels like she's, like, ramping up, and Barbie feels like either this is going to be one of the best movies of the year, or it's going to be a spectacular failure, and I do not think there is a middle ground. Noah Baumbach is a credited co-screenwriter, and I have to tell you, that only makes me more excited. <laughs> um, other than that, I'm like... I, the thing is, I feel like I'm waiting for the awards season stuff to settle and for us to find out, like, who has got interesting movies. Other than that, I'd probably say my most anticipated movie is, is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. Yeah, I would say in terms of the blockbusters, that's probably where I'm at. Uh, I believe we are getting Killers of the Flower Moon this yes. year as well. So that is probably – because of the fact that Martin Scorsese has had trouble getting his movies funded, like, 
I don't know how many more Martin Scorsese movies we're going to get. So to me, if he's releasing a movie, I am, I am all in on it, whether it's good, bad, or somewhere in between. I would say Killers of the Flower Moon is, is up there. I have to tell you, Indiana Jones 5, <laughs> Indiana Jones 4 is bad. I am, intr- I, I am glad that Steven Spielberg is not doing Indiana Jones 5. I am really excited to see what James Mangold does with an Indiana Jones movie. I'm intrigued, but I do think my enjoyment is lessened by the fact that like, I'm happy that Spielberg got to go off and make the Fablemans, but I'm definitely kind of like less interested in Indiana Jones without Spielberg than I was with Spielberg. Because even when I don't enjoy things like I, I'm not a huge fan of Temple of Doom and and I don't like uh, the Crystal Skull because of both of those I'm like very lukewarm to too negative on. But I still think it's a more interesting franchise when like you've got Spielberg and you've got Lucas. And and I think – is Lucas even credited on the screenplay for this one? I don't think so, and that's probably a good thing given where we're at. <laughs> Very true. But like, I'm Here's just... what I'll say. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is a terrible movie. Harrison Ford is really good in it, and that gives me hope that he is going to be really good in 5 because he's actually invested in the franchise. You also think that Mutt should be nominated for Best Character of the Decade? Absolutely. I, I literally hope they say, like, he pulled a poochie and flew back to his, his home planet. That's that's what I hope. Uh, um, Yeah, I will say I the MCU slate this year doesn't really excite me. Like, I'm sure it's going to be fine. But 2022 has kind of soured me on the MCU in general. Yes, although I, I think I'm the opposite of you in that. Like, I think Guardians... Guardians alone has me excited just because I, I like these big auteur-driven products, and I do think James Gunn is someone who deeply, deeply cares about his little pocket of the universe. The Marvels I'm more excited about to kind of like bring those three actresses together in one movie. Yeah, and I, I think, think I'm more excited for that than the actual movie itself. Yeah, and then, <laughs> and then Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp is one of those things where I'm just like, boy... This is this kind of has to be a linchpin to get me excited in, in where this is going forward. But I'm glad that Peyton Reed is getting to operate on on this level. It's um, not even the most excited I am for a Jonathan Major movie released in the first quarter of 2023. Uh, that would I, be Creed Three. That would be Creed Three. I was hoping I could look up to see if there was something else he had coming out. This you're not excited for Magazine Dreams. I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll be better than than ever, than the other two. Maybe it will. Creed Three is also there. I'm also really excited for Creed Three too. Yes. Um, yes. Michael B. Jordan's directorial debut. I don't know that it's going to be – it's not going to have the visual panache of a Ryan Coogler, but I'm very excited to see what he does. And just him and Jonathan Majors alone makes me really excited. Fingers crossed that we get a lot of Tessa in this movie as well, but we shall see. She's not in the uh, trailer very much. Uh, any movie-related goals for 2023? I want to finish off my top 1,000 movies of the 2010s. I've got about 45 movies left on that, so that's definitely one thing. I think I'm going to scale... Only 45. Only 45. I think I'm going to scale back on overall watching, like I did 450 in in uh, 2021, and then I did about 360 in 2022. So I'm going to scale back on the total number of movies, but still try and finish off like some some big lists and whatnot. Uh, I have been doing a full rewatch of Spielberg, because The Fablemans really inspired me, which if you've seen The Fablemans, you'll see why. So I've seen a bunch of his stuff that I've never seen before, including Duel, uh, Always, 1941, and The Sugarland Express. I've seen those four, which I've never seen before. And uh, I will probably be doing a full Spielberg ranking for the website. And I kind of want to do something similar with Scorsese, even though I'm not sure that I'm going to rewatch everything. But Spielberg, I want to do a full rewatch. Uh, Strange Days is on HBO Max, and 
I am so, so excited. I will be watching that very soon. And that's one of those movies that's, like, eluded me because it's not really available in the United States on Blu-ray or DVD that is easily accessible. So Strange Days is something that I will be seeing very, very shortly. Yeah, Strange Days is a masterpiece. I'm sure I'll be doing all my other, like, random things. I'm watching the highest-rated movie from each year with my partner. We kind of made it up to about mid-1950s and then had to put it on the sideline. But I've got a massive Hitchcock box set sat by me right now that we're going to do the 58, 59, and 60 movie, which are all Hitchcock movies. Spoilers, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and and Psycho are pretty well-regarded films. So that's something we're going to tackle very soon. I mean, if that's the only three movies that Hitchcock ever did, that's a borderline Hall of Fame career. Uh, yeah, absolutely, and, that, and that, um, we've already watched Rear Window as part of like this project as well. And so, like, I would argue, like Rear Window is probably like my favorite movie that he's ever done. Yes, and then other than that, it'll be like I mean, I'll be watching all the blank check movies uh, that they're doing this year. I think Danny Boyle's uh, Soft confirmed to be their next filmography, so that'd be fun because there's some real misses in that filmography. Yeah, and then and then just other things. As I said, like maybe I end up doing a Michael Bay watch this year. Maybe I finally watch the three Jurassic World movies. Maybe I finally find out what everyone means when they talk about the Minions or find out what Hunger Games is. Uh, those are things. You've that just, never I have... seen the Jurassic World movies. I've never seen any of them. I've seen that is them. wild. I've I don't even. I, can't, like I don't know if it's worth it or not. It probably isn't. But I'm just one of those people that's just like. Yeah, these three movies have made a billion dollars. Like, Jurassic World Dominion is the, is the only the third movie since the pandemic to make a billion dollars. I, I feel like I need to find out why these movies make so much money, because it can't just be lol dinosaurs. I, I think that, I think that is the reason is lol dinosaurs. <sighs> Well, we'll we'll see. That is that is a project that I'm um, kind of like earmarked for this year it will be me watching mediocre franchises from the 2010s that I've kind of avoided. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really want to get to the same amount for 2023. I want to watch about, I want to try to see at least 120 or so 2023 movies. There's still some 2022 movies that I'm sure I'll be seeing. And uh, I have a Wong Kar Wai Blu-ray from Criterion that was I treated myself so. I will be watching that, and I'm very, very excited, too. So I have seen Chung King Express and In the Mood for Love but and The Grandmaster, but I need to see his other movies, and I'm very excited to do that. Maybe we'll do a like collaborative ranking for the website. Yeah, for, for that, yeah, that would probably be, that would probably be a good idea. Uh, any, fi- any, any final thoughts, Ben? Uh, what, is, what crossover we should do? We should, we should rank the Star Wars movies because that won't generate any controversy. I feel like I feel like there is, should be a monitorium on like discussing Star Wars on this website. Um, I just, I mean, I know that we're like like most of the site is agreed, but there's always like the chaos bomb that comes in to kind of like completely destroy the general. If Brian, sense. If Brian and I did a podcast about the Last Jedi and the, the Rise of Skywalker, that might be the last podcast we ever do. Is are you like completely flipped on both of those? Yes. Uh, I just I just remember being sat there for Rise of Skywalker. And I could tell in the first five minutes, I was like, oh, they're rushing this thing. Like, they are. Ben, like... <laughs> the, the, the dead speak, and I was done. Literally the opening crawl, and I was like, I'm out. I, I was aware of the dead speak. I was not aware that it would feel like high frame rate watching like Kylo Ren do his thing at the start of that movie because I was just like, they're speeding up the footage here because they just don't have enough time to get through the plot of this movie. But that is for another day, which may never come because, yeah, I don't know when we'll ever find the time. Because I think even, I don't, Mike and Matt never even got to finish speaking about the Star Wars movies because one of them just didn't bother to go see Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> I mean, it's it's pretty fair to do that. I I kind of regret it too, but alas, we will we will find a way to do crossovers. I'm sure 
Ben will be off doing his various projects, Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey. I will be doing Pantheon Plus. Uh, I'm so excited to rewatch and discuss Matrix Resurrections. I can't even tell you. It's it's such a good movie. Yeah, uh, Ben and Matt's Marvelous Journey will be back in February. We're hoping to time it to the release of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania because fuck knows when Secret Invasion comes out, but we want to kind of like draft off of some goodwill towards the MCU. So yeah, so around the time that that comes out, we'll be presenting you our thoughts on Moon Knight. Two movies or one movie and one TV show, I'm sure that will have immensely thing, immense things in common. Absolutely. All right, so for Ben... Uh, my name is Jerome. This has been our special presentation. Uh, I'm g- I'm going to ask you: Will Will there be movies in 2023? Uh, I hope so, but I hope there's less of them that I had to watch in 2022 because I I really marathoned movies at the end of the year. I think I got through about 30 in, in December alone. Perfect way to end it. Na pata zudu, na pata zudu, na pata zudu na.